0: Where do we start? Well, you know, does academisation improve skill standards? There's a good question.
1: Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Rethinking Education podcast. Ross McGill really needs no introduction. Through his alter ego teacher toolkit, Ross is something of a publishing powerhouse with around a quarter of a million followers on Twitter, by far the biggest following of anyone in education and most people put together. A teacher and school leader with decades of experience, Ross now works as a consultant and has worked in over 200 schools, colleges, and universities around the UK and the world. Ross also has one of the most influential education blogs on the planet with around 12 million readers, I believe. These numbers are just staggering. He also has published five books by my count, the most recent being Mark Plan Teach 2.0. I recorded my conversation with Ross the day we broke up before Christmas, when, as you may recall, the Department for Education was doing its level best to dash any hopes of festive fun for the nation's teachers, with a series of screeching, hair-raising U-turns. Because that part of the conversation was particularly timely, we published the first 30 minutes or so of our conversation as a mini-episode, episode four, if you want to go back and listen, that very day. Since then, I'm pleased to report that Gavin Williamson has listened to our advice, and now everything is going swimmingly. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, I've just been given some information. That's not true at all. I really enjoyed listening back to what was a wide-ranging conversation with Ross, in which we discuss, among other things, the perils and delights of EduTwitter, the way in which teaching is becoming a much more sure-footed, evidence-informed profession, and the trouble with Ofsted, an organisation Ross refers to as the Grim Reaper, which makes a change. At my school, we used to refer to them as the Dementors. That's not fair is it i'm sure they're all really lovely when you get to know them dementors i mean i hope you enjoy the show ross mcgill welcome back to the rethinking education podcast following our chat about the chaos at the dfe about three minutes ago
0: yeah hi james um thanks for having me hello everyone listening
1: I want to start by asking you about the teacher toolkit and and how this came to be. Recently, my follower count on Twitter tipped over into five thousand, and I was thrilled. And I had friends. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I had friends uh, commenting to say they are genuinely jealous. I, I, I
0: believe you. You probably only know five people. <laughs>
1: So so I believe that you have, is it something like 240,000 followers or something?
0: Well, that, yeah, well, if that that's if you're just looking at Twitter. But um, I think across all platforms, it's pushing 350 now, which is nuts.
1: That is nuts. Yeah, so I saw a few recent stats. The Teacher Toolkit website has been viewed over 11 or 12 million times. You've got a newsletter that goes out to 45,000 people. This is all astonishing. There are many astonishing statistics about this. Um, Later on, I'll take you back to the beginning and ask you about sort of your own experience of childhood and so on and your own experience of school, which is a really unique and fascinating story. But for now, I wonder whether you might just take us back to the beginning of the teacher toolkit phenomenon. How did all of this come about? Uh,
0: I I, I started my first job in senior leadership mid-2000s and moved to a national challenge school in Wembley, uh, kind of Northwest London. And I've been blogging since 2000 actually, but really, um, you know, uh, if you remember IDSL connections and you clicked a link, it would take a minute for the page to load. Um, That's when I'd started blogging, but it was very rare and it was just more of a curiosity than anything else. Um, When the teacher toolkit blog started, I. I kind of merged different platforms and blogging experiences to think, right, I want to write a blog about teaching. And my intention only ever was when I started this new leadership job to just maybe once a half term over the kind of holiday break, just write a little diary, nothing too complicated uh, uh, about my thoughts or what I was doing. And that's all it was. So uh, my old website, which you can still find today, um, was I've wrote about thirty blogs over two or three years uh, largely unread. well it had thirty thousand views i think um my last one was about Michael gove at the time uh about two thousand and ten but that that's when it started but it was very you know a blog every three months and it was pretty much is as when we we're talking about podcasts earlier, and uh, everyone's podcasting now, but ten years ago it was hard enough to Uh, find anyone doing it and then it was quite cumbersome to be able to listen to it and and use the technology and and, blogging is the same, everyone's doing it now, it's a lot easier for people. Um, But I started in 2007 writing as I've just described and then I guess the catalyst was in 2011 I was expecting to be a dad and the school, local authority school was transitioning to become an academy. Ed, e, well, was called trust at the time so that's now e-act and with all its financial irregularities and warnings and all those types of things um at the time uh, the school kind of hesitantly transitioned transitioned over to become an academy and the building was on its knees so it was definitely top of the list for a rebuild with the authority but i guess the head teacher at the time knew that at least the local uh, switching to an academy might bring entire rebuild so whatever the political reason or the rationale the rebuild happened and essentially brought a boys school and a girls school together under one site and when i saw the design plans i saw the writing on the wall i thought hang on there's going to be lots of redundancies here and a couple of years later that process started to happen and, and on the leadership team i had to be part of the process um reshaping head of boys maths head of girls maths into one head of maths And also knowing at one point it was probably going to reach me and it did. So I've been teaching 17 or 18 years at the time and I um, chose to take voluntary redundancy. So there's a whole story there about that process and the stigma associated with it. But the long story short was then as I was in my head thinking about taking redundancy to get away from this school and try something different, my teacher toolkit blog was, I guess, dormant behind the scenes. And then my son was born prematurely, quite, you know, quite a serious emergency story. So my wife was rushed to hospital um, in May of 2011, and we were sent to a hospital in Dover, uh, William Harvey, I think it's called, in Ashford. So it's about 85 miles away from where we lived in North London. And my son was in hospital hospital for 82 days and, you know, it was a life and death scenario, and it was exhausting. But essentially, I was on garden leave from that moment. So, you know, ASCO were very, uh, very supportive and brilliant to help me through that process. So essentially, I'd left a job that I didn't want to stay in. I kind of accepted a uh, voluntary redundancy. So whatever the payout was at the time, it allowed me to get through the next three to six months. But going back to your question, how did teacher talk it start? I wrote a diary about my son's life or his decisions the doctors were making on a daily basis. And it was therapy. I was by his bedside 12 hours a day, you know, driving 85 miles down, getting there at nine o'clock, 12 hours later, driving home. It was exhausting. Um, and the the blog, I suppose, or at least my notes on the phone, I could go home, fiddle with it, put it on my Facebook page, and my whole family could see what was happening, because. In that kind of stressful scenario, you had a lot of people wanting text messages night, night and day about what was happening in the hospitals with poor receptions. It's just hard to communicate. So I thought the best thing to do is write a blog or write some notes on my phone, turn it into a blog, put it on my Facebook page. And that, that blog went viral. Uh, you know, it had a quarter of a million views in a couple of months. Um, and it renewed my, well, it, the thought process about writing, reflecting, sharing, but also what was interesting was the kind of community of the premature baby world started to send gifts books i started to be asked to go on the radio and television and all sorts so it was a nice distraction when freddie was healthier and we moved closer to home but the kind of trying to make this a shorter story um when i was home with freddie on oxygen not in teaching for the first time in my life you know having gone from sixth form to teacher training to then straight into the classroom again um, I found it very strange on the first of September not to be in a school. So I started writing my blog. So I re, uh, so essentially I, I wrote a blog for Freddie and then I thought, well, I've got an old crap teacher toolkit blog. Let me just revamp it and update it and start writing there. So my first blog was dealing with redundancy or, or as a father, thinking as a father, as a teacher type stuff. So they're all on the site. Um, and then you know just sitting at home living off my redundancy pay and kind of getting used to being a dad dealing with a premature child and all all that's an interesting story in its own right because uh, child children of premature birth don't grow the same way as a normal child they don't sleep the same way so life as a new parent is very stressful and very different and even getting a normal cold might take a couple of days for a child but a premature child it can take two or three weeks so that impacts on your work so lot you know moving forward quickly if you go back to school life as a premature parent trying to take time off school to look after a sick child is incredibly difficult so a lot of the premature policies in government have changed since there's not a lot of guidance or funding to support premature children but in that early kind of september 2011 i started to blog as teacher toolkit and um, I looked at other people in the past. So I won a teaching awards. For, uh, the, the teaching awards before it was on the telly, you know, the traditional red carpet stuff that you get today. Um, you know, the teaching awards. I won the Guardian Award for Teacher of the Year in London in 2004. And the Guardian Teaching Network had started about 2010. And I knew a couple of the, the ladies who were in charge of the kind of platform or the kind of journalistic side of the Guardian. So I thought, well, you It was called the Guardian Teacher of the Year Award. So I thought, well, let me just get in touch and email and say, can I just write for you and just create some content? And they bit my hand off. So I just started writing for The Guardian. And I guess with that kind of media platform, it gave me a bit more of a profile as well. And it started to just rekindle this love of teaching, but from a writing perspective, and, and you know, I was doing that for a couple of months, and I was looking at job applications, thinking longer term, thinking that I might get back into school January 2012, um, but it happened early in the thought, and I ended up going to school in Tottenham, and the school really renewed my love for teaching, um, having gone through the kind of bitter period of academy trans transfer, transfer or kind of that kind of process of redundancy. Um, and the dialogue shifted from right, let's see how Ross is, to let's see if Ross wants to stay. So that was uh, reassuring. But the interesting thing is I kind of did a sideways move in my leadership career. Uh, I was applying for deputy headships at the time. So I had to take a kind of sideways move to assistant head and about a, an eight or a 9,000 pound pay cut. Um, but the school uh, rekindled my teacher in mojo, I suppose. But the the key thing was I started to write more on my blog in this new job when I'd kind of re-established some teacher happiness. So dad, premature child was surviving, um, all sorts of, there was a lot of complicated other things going on, you know, selling the house to try and pay debts and stuff from redundancy. But I, I really got into my blog in 2011, 12 and started to write maybe once a week. And then it started, you know, in blogging life there. And I think I had 10,000 followers, um, at that time. So that was enormous back then um and i've never really understood why um you know i've got a lot of followers but you know you have to work hard to to share ideas you have to you know good ideas hopefully kind of filter to the top and you know it's not a one-way channel i like to talk to people online at least people i don't know try and make their life happier and i hope that kind of digital impact i guess that's where it is today um you get you kind of it's almost like a, a digital CV or a, a kind of referral makes rate type of stuff where people thank you later on. But it, the the blog became a a hobby uh, while I was full time teaching, and then uh, Bloomsbury asked me to write a book, uh, 100 Ideas, uh, when they were revamping the 100 Ideas series, and it was the one the first one um, of the kind of rebrand. So I bit their arm off um, and I got a terrible commission at the time looking back but um, it allowed me to clear a credit card debt uh, having gone through redundancy and it paid well we didn't go on holiday for five years because of the risks of premature travel and stuff but um it allowed us to kind of do a little holiday in the UK I think we went to Scotland at the time but um, it that was really flattering to get some ideas published in print and it kind of just I guess rubber stamp that I was doing the right thing in blogging and teaching could give me a, a second income. And having just lost my house to redundancy and a huge pay cut in teaching, have to take a step back as a result of the redundancy catamization process, so to speak, um, I thought, well, this is a good way to start feeding my family and survive. And you know, 10, 12 years later, I can survive outside the system by supporting it from my position inside rather than living in it so that we can talk about that later but um that, that's I guess how it started 2011 10 ish time
1: incredible it's a, it's a really interesting story and it seems like it grew out of a period of your life that just sounds like it was very very sort of traumatic there was this stuff with your son and redundancy and you know financial worries and it seems like there was a lot of of sort of turmoil going on in the background that this incredible thing somehow sort of grew out of this adversity that you're in.
0: I mean, I I was uh, trying to think. So the the blog started in 2007, but the the period that I'm talking about is 2010-11. But I was, I've just met my wife, you know, we were dating. um, I was in my early 30s. I was very fit, very happy, uh, you know, Good social life, uh, a really really good salary as a senior leader in London, and expecting to be a dad. Just got my first little two bed flat in London, which is no mean feat it's, uh, itself to get on the property ladder in London. And uh, yeah, looking back, it was traumatic. No one prepares you for premature. When when you when you're going to be a parent, you no one thinks oh your child might be born premature or your you, your child might not make it to the end. Although we kind of might we know the associated risks with pregnancy, that premature conversation rarely comes up. Uh, and I think there's a lot more work today about the, the kind of profile of premature birth. And I'm reminded of a brilliant educator, Professor Barry Carpenter, who you might know, that I've done a lot of work with over the years. He's done some amazing work with special needs and premature children. And I'm reminded of a brilliant thing that he said in my podcast uh, about six months ago, that one day all head teachers or schools will be given an MRI scan of all our children and i think there'll be a whole left-wing right-wing controversial debate about that but if i understand the brain better as a teacher which is what i'm also exploring in my own professional development uh, at the moment if i understand the hippocampus the frontal cortex and i can look at a brain map and then it then gives me it's almost like having a report pre admissions from your primary school to your secondary school but if that re- mri scan then shapes what teachers should do in terms of cognitive ability wow we could do incredible things in our schools Um, and i think back to my own son's development and these mates that were born premature because you do build up a little friendship or community of other parents that go through that experience and we're still in touch with some of them today but um you know every kind of scan let's just check his brain let's just check his balls let's just check his heart you know you're just waiting for them to say oh there's a valve missing or you know, and then your life's different. And we saw other babies around us have, I don't know what is it a trachea where you put Tracheotomy. A, a, yeah, you t- a tube down the throat to help them breathe and eat. You know, some kids are so lucky from their premature experience, but, you know, touch wood, Fred's been, my son's been really, you know, there's one or two little things there, but on the grand scheme of things, he's done incredible. And, you know, he's born one pound, nine ounces. That's Half a bag oh, of sugar, goodness. 700 grams. Um, you know, mo- and he was, I think, in terms of quintiles, um, he was uh, fourth percentage quintile, the smallest. So someone's got to be small, right? <laughs> but, um, um, you know, you realize I just want my kid to be normal. So most of us aspire to be the best or the greatest. But, you know, I just want my boy to be normal. Um, and I think that's a good thing to settle for. Um so yeah, it's that, a whole journey of that premature life in itself, and then how it influences you as a parent or also as a teacher is quite fascinating as well.
1: Yeah, and so as I understand it, the, the running the website and and alongside your consultancy is now your full time job. But for a while, you went back to teaching, didn't you?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I, I so I went back for six years, uh, seven years. Looking back, it was. That, You know, I I just thought I was going to teach forever, Um, and I'm not ruling out that I'll never go back. Um, I absolutely love kids, I love the classroom, but I think for 15 years, you know, or I think back even earlier, maybe back to 2000, I was always, I guess through love or circumstance, you know, I absolutely love teaching. you could just ask my wife anything. Any conversation in society, I'll turn it round to the classroom or the, or the teaching. You know lo- that love of learning. Likewise. Uh, so I get I get criticised for that at home, but um, you know I'm very passionate about education and skill on the whole. Um, I forgot what we we're talking about there. But um, you going back to I, school? Yeah, uh, I, I'm not ruling out not going back to it at all. But I'm having lots of fun right now. But also. My point was that I've been teaching other teachers since 2000. So that's just emerged into full-time teacher training because I was doing it as part of my job anyway in large secondary schools, you know, trying to manage 250 staffs, a full-time job, Uh, never mind your own teaching and everything else that comes in school. And then, you know, through the nature of the blog, you were starting to be asked to do things for other schools. So it was either in the evenings or half-term or Saturdays. So I found myself, one, working night and day for other things as well as my own school life, and two, often doing a lot of things for love or for free and getting quite exhausted. And I guess the third point was I was turning down some amazing opportunities. So I managed, I guess, looking back for about six, five, six years, blogging as teacher toolkit as well as being a teacher, um, balancing it both, but ultimately working 80, 90 hours a week, mm-hmm. if not more. Um, and, it, you know, you can do it to a certain degree when you're young, but when you've got a family and you start to question your own performance um, it, it, in in school as well as your you know contributions to home life, um, something's got to give. You can't do it all. But the blog's always been a push and pull between personal and professional and managing it all. And, you know, today it is – I'm surprised how much I, I, I can still sustain it all Uh, on my own with all the statistics, but I do know with a little bit of extra support and income, I could take it to another level. But I'm a bit shy, having gone through all the accountability professionally to bring it all on myself. But, you know, I I guess it's evolving naturally, you know, privacy policy, legal fees, data protection. I've got some accountability in other shape or form. And I have to be careful what I share on social media, you know as you become a, an influencer so to speak you you get a bit shy as you get a larger audience you become a bit more closed in about what you do want to share and what you don't because you know having visited many schools now you can just turn up to a school in the middle of nowhere and so and so turns around in the lunch queue that you're doing an inset for and says oh i saw you uh say something about this or i saw you just installed this at your house or whatever else so you never know what you know it's it's all of our use of social media but it's 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 got huge potential but also we have to be a bit cautious of what we share um personally and professionally and you know we can talk about teacher standards um but on the whole i'm enjoying it and i'm not really turning back to teaching in the future but i'm having lots of fun and i think i guess my impact on the teaching community is far wider than me just attached to one school which it was the case for a number of years before I left the classroom, so I guess now I can truly make sure that I can make a big, bigger, bigger difference to a lot more teachers uh, doing it full-time. Yeah,
1: well, I think that you can from outside of the system. You know, I miss teaching a lot, and I think that I would go back to it, but I don't think I would go back full-time just because I'm at least as interested in the, the professional learning of teachers as I am in the, the learning of young people. And like you say, Mm -hmm. you can have this multiplier effect. If you can teach teachers some way of doing things, like this work I'm doing on implementation science at the moment, people are saying that this is really transforming the way that they think about school leadership. And that has this incredible multiplier effect across the system. Um, And so um, I share many many of your thoughts there. Okay, so let's let's take a pause. And as you know, with this with this podcast, um, I want to talk about rethinking education, you know, what do you want to see more of? What do we want to see less of? Uh, what challenges do we face? What solutions might there be on the horizon? But I always want to contextualize and situate these conversations in within the context of people's lives, because you've got a very unique life story that led to you be, being who you became, you know, who you are today. And likewise, so does everybody else, right? And so I, I really want to mm-hmm. really sort of understand the story of each guest. So with that in mind, I would like to, to ask you to go back to the beginning and to think about your own childhood. And I know that you had quite an unusual, you moved around a lot as a child, didn't you? you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. your own experience of school and later on, your education later?
0: Uh, so I, I went to uh, seven, I think, from memory, at least seven. four primary schools, three secondary schools. Uh, my mother and father worked in the social side of the Salvation Army, so that's homeless hostels, and they were essentially told where to work. Um, so I, I grew up in Scotland, first 10, 11 years of my life. Um, went to a couple of schools in Kilburnie, which is near Irvine, Glasgow side, and then a school in Dundee. Then they relocated to London to train to be ministers of religion, which is the kind of I guess the official qualification of. Uh, working in the Sally Army, and you're then deployed, it's a bit like an, uh, it's got a military kind of terminology, but you're deployed to different places where you're needed. Can I just interrupt you for
1: one second? Like, I'm not massively sure what the Salvation Army is. Could you just give me like a really quick explanation? What is it?
0: Um, So it's a a Christian organization, Protestant. It was founded by uh, William Booth back in the um, early 80s. Uh, and it was largely evolved from supporting disadvantaged people in society, but it's evolved into a ministry of God, so to speak, Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's got, so it's a church. It's, uh, you know, got a uh, uh, young people singing choir. It's got an adult choir. It's got a young people's band playing brass instruments, uh, an adult version. The, 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 the kind of church setting supports a local community. So you'll have, uh, you know, an over sixties club. You'll have uh, some th- things that you might see in the telly is, you know, the Sally Army with a little soup van giving uh, homeless people, you know, bread and soup. Or if there's an emergency, you'll see, uh, uh, you know, Sally Army there handing out kind of food supplies. And that's um, a lot more, uh, you know, different organizations. You'll see that through, you know, I think thinking of kind of extreme, circ- well, the pandemic of recent times, but also, you know, Granville Tower and things you'll often see multiple organizations but the sally army is always there so that's the kind of church ministry side and the things that they do in the local community but then there's the so that's the church the sunday worship and the kind of friday night kids club and the sunday morning sunday school for kids and then you've got the the social side which is um you know they're doing amazing things now and far more probably broader than i could explain but essentially from children's homes and hostels to men's hostels to women's hostels to looking after homeless people, people with severe learning needs or just uh, very extreme kind of living circumstances. My my memories of kind of people that I would socialize with as a child would be from schizophrenics to drug addicts to alcoholics to young offenders and probably a lot worse than I was ever aware of. Um, you know, playing snooker after school or milking the goats, whatever it would be. My my entire childhood was in that kind of uh, hostile environment where there was in excess 50 people, if not in some cases, maybe three or four hundred. Uh, and my mother and father were in charge of those settings and they had a, a group of staff to manage it. Was a bit like a, a school environment, I suppose, best, best way to describe it. And then the pupils, or I guess with the homeless people, and uh, it was their job to look after them, to f- to feed them, to give them a shelter and to manage all the kind of social stuff, you know, the, their their kind of salary or their kind of money that they'll get from the government to taking them out on day trips to Blackpool or wherever it would be to let them have a bit of a, more of an experience. I guess the ultimate goal in that setting was to get them reintegrated back into society with the local council supporting them for whatever it would be. So... Yeah, the Salvation Army do amazing work. Um, they do a lot a lot of incredible things. Um, I wouldn't say I was a, a religious advocate today. I think having had it, uh, apologies, Mum, for listening, but uh, having maybe had it hammered into me uh, from a young age, um, you know, I've now formed my own opinions of God. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's given me a good ground, and it's very much very much part of my soul yeah
1: absolutely fascinating so it sounds like you had this very rich and what would be in many ways an educational experience that was happening in your home life um, oh God, yeah. but yeah. there was also you know the, the fact that you were moving around so much did what was the effect of that would you say on your learning within school
0: yeah well I, I can only really evaluate it now as a teacher and as an adult but um I was incredibly shy I was incredibly Hard working there's uh, the word I wanted to use, but probably I would, uh, I think rather than hard working, just wanted to do the right thing and not get in trouble. Um, and I don't know how that came about. I've always been conscientious. I think about my other three brothers, I probably still of, of of that personality, I suppose. I, I would come home and do my homework straight away so that I could relax and then watch the telly and do whatever I wanted without that pressure. And I'd even get my school uniform clothes ready for the next morning. It's just what, how I was, (laughs) Um, but the reality was I was very, very shy, Um, moving to different schools, you always had to get to know new teachers, make new friends, so going to seven schools, given that you're in school for 11 years and you went to seven, there's not much opportunity for consolidation of any kind, suppose, for curriculum, never mind friendships and um, so that's probably why i was quite shy and reserved and even up to university i'd probably say it took me quite a few years to get out of my shell and probably only in my mid-30s where i really started i mean it's all of us for when as we develop as humans you start to establish what kind of person you are and your values and your own choices and decisions so yeah you know the am gave me a good ground in i think going to lots of different schools um definitely had some pros and cons i think what, what what one memory is quite interesting is that i remember moving from scotland to england at the time this is in the early uh late set late 70s and i was quite ahead of my peers in terms of english and times tables and those types of things you know not by much but it was quite noticeable and whether that was just a mixture of just well what either what was it curriculum or type style of teaching or was it my memory or my own experiences who knows but that's what it felt like whether whether i was accurate or not i have no idea i'm obviously relying on my own memory here and um, but that's how i felt so it was really interesting looking back as a child different school environments you could definitely feel different behavior different values different expectations and if that's what you can think of as a child and you can still remember that, then you, the, I guess there's some merit in listening to kids a bit more, I suppose, when we come to evaluate what should and shouldn't be um, taught, in, taught in schools or, or approaches.
1: Yes. And so I know that you had quite a, a formative experience with a, a, a design technology teacher who sort of um, sparked your interest in teaching.
0: Yeah, so this, uh, in sixth, in fact, before that, in U 11 or the fifth year, um, I'd just moved from a school in Wales to a school up in Fleetwood, just north of Blackpool. And uh, Mr. Paul Boldy, actually, he still follows me on in Instagram, <laughs> uh, which is nice, and he's been really chuffed to see how I've progressed in the teaching world. And I went back to the school a couple of months ago during lockdown, one of the few physical jobs that I've done, and that was a real nice full circle moment professionally. Uh, so we can talk about that. But... Um, Yeah, Fleetwood High School, Paul Boldy, he was the head of design technology at the time. Uh, This is in the early 90s. Um, And I was just arrived in the fifth year. um, And then in the sixth form going into, well, 89, going into 90 to do the sixth form. And it was that one conversation. So we must have been talking about careers a lot in school. And he said, look, you like kids, you love DT. Why don't you be a DT teacher? And then... I guess my reaction or I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, so then it started. So they did a lot of work behind the scenes, uh, the department and Paul, to prepare me for interview. Uh, we, uh, he, he even got me teaching his classes in year seven. <laughs> so a clever teacher got reduced his timetable <laughs> got me teaching. And I was a sixth former teaching year seven kids. And, you know, I can't remember if it was the entire lesson, but it certainly felt like it. But uh, I was doing a little DT project with them, and it was a great experience. And then doing mock interviews and making sure that my DT portfolio with all the different things that I'd made, and I kept, you know, carrying that down from London. I went to Goldsmiths and South East London to train. Um, yeah, they did a lot of stuff, you know. So it, it, it was it's it's very fond memories looking back now. The things that they did to, I guess, kickstart my teaching career. You know, look at me now. Um, so it was well worth their time.
1: Yeah. And so you said there that you went back to Fleetwood recently.
0: Yeah. So uh, the school got in touch um, probably the start of lockdown in March 2020 and wanted to do a bit of training. Uh, so we speculated on the physical versus the remote. And I just said, look, I'm an ex-student. I would love to come and visit. Um and at the time, I was living in London, so I was quite prepared to do that. You know, I've been traveling all around the world anyway, so going up to Blackpool's no big deal. But um, And then I've relocated up to West Yorkshire throughout the pandemic. And so actually, my first job here, living in a new place, actually driving there, was a, a nice experience. But also to go back to a, a school where I was a pupil was great. So I, I was there... And um, for the day, I did a, a job with all the staff in the morning and then with the new teachers in the afternoon. And it was, you know, social distancing and masks and all those. So that was a very interesting experience in its own right. Uh, but, yeah, it was lovely to go back. I mean, it was a different school building, so it's a very different setting. Um, but one or two of the staff are still there. And many of them recalled some of the teachers that I mentioned and the head teacher there who's doing a great job. He was there as a student a couple of years before me. So we had a few memories of different people and things like that, but um, it's... What was interesting is that coastal school in a very uh, remote community, you know, disadvantaged kids, you can look at the poverty index of the UK and all sorts of things. Um, it's, you know, these schools play important roles in our society, and I, I'm just lucky, I guess, as a free school mill people uh, coming from Fleetwood to have, to have done... Yeah, I think I've done all right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it really is true. You know, I know that it's a bit of a cliche to say that teachers can save lives, but it can change lives. But it really is true. had a lovely exchange recently. Somebody listened to the episode one of this podcast with my interview with Debbie Kidd. And we talked about this whole idea of doing a timeline of your life and sort of significant learning. And she drew a timeline of her life. And she, through no fault of her own, had had a lot lot Mm -hmm. of time off primary school. I think she got run over and she'd had some illness and so on through no fault of her own. And so later on, she now, you know, sees education as being really valuable, but it was a teacher, she said, it was a drama teacher who really noticed her and nurtured her and wouldn't wouldn't let her fail, who changed the trajectory of her life. And it's almost sort of just like terrifying. If you if you actually pause to think about the power that you have as a teacher to potentially change oh, yes. the lives of these kids. And even in not changing them, you're sort of affecting their their lives, you know. So that the the responsibility that we carry is actually quite overwhelming
0: yeah i mean that that, that's part of our teachers role you know the challenge for all our teachers is there's 30 kids in front of you so you you know you can get connections with kids over the academic year but you know in a secondary setting where you have seen children every hour there's not much scope to develop a good relationship so it kind of relies on heads of year form tutors those types of things or teachers that you connect with in particular subjects but we all know that if you get that teacher or that pupil moment, and you can unlock their potential, or inspire them to greater things, or to just improve their behaviour, uh, it does change your life. The challenge is now, I guess, or, or the difficulty for teachers is you can't, you can't necessarily do that for every child. Or there's very, you get the odd little story as a teacher. You, you know, you can connect with some of kids in the future, and it's nice to see. But it, it kind of wishes that you knew about all the children that you work with, and kind of could see which ones you could have done a bit more to help save them or to help unlock their potential. Um, Yeah, it's a great responsibility.
1: It really is. So... Before we move on to the rethinking education part as you know I'm really interested in this idea of significant learning of like learning that shapes your behavior as a person and some of that happens in formal education like we were just talking about but often those things don't happen in formal education so just sort of looking back over your life and we've heard some examples of this already in the conversation so far are there any sort of moments that you think have really shaped you as a person Um, and if so what are they?
0: Um, well, definitely my Salvation Army experience, you know, those values, working with vulnerable people, I look back on all my whole school life, and I was always drawn to more challenging kids working in challenging schools. Um, If I think back to any extreme scenarios in school, whether it was knife incidents or seeing some extreme violence or self-harm or whatever i was always drawn to those um events you know even you know, even as a teacher never mind as a school leader where you're out in the corridor quite a lot and you're picking up a lot of these issues um So, definitely my salvation army. Um, I think another thing that I've only just started to talk about recently was my experience of surviving sexual abuse, you know, as a 30-year-old boy and having lived with it for 30, 35 years of my life. um, Obviously, the experience affected me, kind of, my mental health for a long time, but not being able to process it, you know, without any therapy, I suppose, or to articulate it or to share it or talk about it confidently. And to, I guess, raise the profile or to help people, you know, um, I believe only 4% of men ever speak out, um, despite, I, I'll have to double check all the statistics, but I think 70,000 a year men are raped or sexually abused in the UK. Um, so it's it's huge. And, you know, those, those abusers can be men and mm. women. Um, so that's something I've only really just talked about recently and that's definitely shaped me. Um,
1: Can I just ask about that? What how, what was your experience of sharing that? Um, that It must've been a big moment for you.
0: Um, it was ultimately just telling my family more than anyone else. Um, so that was a, a a slow process. There was countless times in my life where I was with my um, mother and I wanted to tell her, but the time never come up uh, or I wasn't ready or the opportunity went. But just a a mixture of events, uh, recently, um, my dog's here behind me telling me she needs a wee. (laughs) Um, A mixture of events and circumstances just uh, got to a point where it was just a a quick conversation. I definitely overplayed it in my head, but a quick conversation. My mum was sad, sorry, um, frustrated, wanted to help, thanked me for telling her. And I realized, you know, she's just a mum. She wants to protect her children. Um, you know, we talked about the situation, the scenario, and how maybe it could have been better. But um, it I, I was a huge weight off my shoulder. So then telling my immediate family and then just being able to write about it or talk about it has been really, really useful. Um, you know, the whole aspect of reporting to the police as well as a historical case, was another journey, uh, which and I only really dealt with it because I think working as a freelancer or travelling a lot, you got a lot more time to reflect. And I think this often came back to my consciousness in school holidays when I had a lot more time to just think about life. And I think the events of Chelsea Football Club and Stoke City, Barry Bennell, and all these different abusers. And hearing stuff on the radio just made it all come back up and I just found myself occasionally on the road Just on a little tear in my eye or something like that. and just thinking right. I need to do something about this and I think I, 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 I think ultimately I was just living a lie to myself and I know not everyone's in a place to be able to talk about it and there'll be a lot of You know dare I say threat to people's lives for people speaking out as well mm-hmm. and a lot of impact on the individual for speaking out you know some people might not believe you or some people might think you're just attention seeking or, or whatever it would be or you know i i think of some people that might say well, why did you wait 32 years um because i did it's taken me that long and um so yeah that was a that's definitely shaped me recently uh well i guess it's <laughs> shaped me in my entire life but it's been a real nice moment to get to i still haven't um used it to this uh, uh, I don't want to sound, make this sound callous or something but I'd like to write about it and use the experience of talking about it to help a lot more others um so I haven't really thought about that much but uh, uh, there's been one or two events in the teaching world you know male mental health where I've been invited to talk about it but some of the events for some reason pre-pandemic never kicked off so a bit of a missed opportunity there but I've always been a bit fearful of talking about it publicly I think this is probably the second or third podcast I've ever talked about it. Um, and I have to consider, you know, my family, my son, you know, people listen to this in the future and stuff. You know, I've got a responsibility now that I have spoken about it to help others, to flag up what people should and shouldn't do, the impact of sharing it. You know, what one thing I definitely underplayed was not only people saying, well done, you're brave and things, but then I was just inundated with loads of private disclosures that I never, ever imagined from people I knew and from people that hadn't even spoken out to their own families or friends. And some people were living with it 50, 60 years and even more extreme situations than myself. Um, you know, and this is you know, first world country where we've got good resources, good good state of affairs to a degree, despite all the political stuff and the pandemic. So you've got, you do think, you know, more vulnerable, insecure countries in the world and kids that are exploited. And, uh, you know, I'd like to talk about social media at some point, the, the implications of social media that we we all benefit from the, the, the lovely social media world, but uh, we seem to just accept that there are some downsides, but we'll get on with it. Meanwhile... We're all well-established adults who know right from wrong, but there are a lot of children growing up through social media that don't or haven't been given the kind of cultural capital to survive or to deal with those incidents and then be able to express it with people if they've seen something inappropriate or have been, have experienced trolling or whatever it would be or grooming. So um, there's a whole aspect there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I mean it's it's great that you're at this point now where you can feel that like you can start to do something about it and like you say it's incredible just the amount of people who are carrying incredible weights and incredible pain around with them that they don't that they don't get to talk about, they don't get to sort of to share and to process and it's so important that we do. And I, and again, you know, I'm like you in that I want to bring everything back to education and I I don't think education can fix you know child sexual you know problems but um i do think that we can do things in education to help young people learn how to process difficulty mm-hmm. much better than we currently do
0: um yeah i mean safeguard uh, you know one one key frustration that did shape me was i had organized my you know school leader always organized an inset for everyone else and you know once a year or once a term you do your safeguarding inset for your staff and i had uh, worked with this brilliant safeguarding uh, officer for a number of years who did a brilliant inset bringing very difficult issues uh to the forefront of teacher thinking you know whether it was through humor or through controversy or whatever but it was fantastic cpd but i remember actually sharing it with her privately and then she kind of casually in a professional manner said there could be people in in this room now who have also been sexually abused and that obviously resonated with me but i was with someone on my table as a school leader who who barked and said yeah right and i never called it out and as a school leader that's criminal as someone as a, a a victim stroke survivor of sexual abuse it's even worse so that was quite a haunting moment for me and that was about um, I won't say the year in case people recognize who it might be or what school, but um, it, that was quite an instrumental moment in my professional life with my personal experiences. And it just kind of raises the profile that safeguarding should never, ever just be, oh, it's just another bog standard inset day. The the impact of it on us as, as professionals, you know, the verbal, non-verbal signals, the complexity of safeguarding and the things that we should know or the things we shouldn't know or the responsibility that the designated safeguarding lead has on their shoulder without much support for their own mental health uh, and school resources and you know access to counselors and psychotherapists is enormous and you know th- talking about the pandemic and everything our schools are uh i kind of just a a mini mini center of society at large dealing with kids of food banks giving them clothes washing their clothes giving them hot meals, you know, schools are more than just teaching kids how to pass a maths exam.
1: As well as just satisfying my unquenchable appetite for talking about education, I would really like for this podcast to be the catalyst for a wider conversation about education reform. With this in mind, there is now a Rethinking Education community forum where listeners can follow up the ideas we discuss in the podcast, ask questions either to myself or to my guests and interact with one another as we think through the details of how we might rethink and reform education so as to increase our chances of surviving this crazy period of history that we are currently living through. There's also a free 10-part video course, Learning to Learn at Home, for parents and carers who want to help their children, anyone really, but young people in particular, become more confident, proactive, independent learners. The Rethinking Education Community Forum is a mighty network, so it works on any device. If you're on a computer, visit rethinking education Dot mn dot co or you can download the mighty networks app and search for rethinking education okay on with the show okay so we'll move now into thinking about education and what we might like to see more of or less of and I know that you're keen to to talk about Ofsted, and I think that that might be a good place to start, because it sort of it's crosses over between your own personal experiences that you've had with Ofsted. I think you've been inspected nine times, is it in total?: uh, Nine or ten, perhaps definitely nine.: Yeah, you should get a loyalty card.) <laughs> yeah. um, so let's start with that. Let's talk about some of your experiences with Ofsted before we move into thinking about education more widely.
0: I just thought I granted then. That's very rare occurrence to to get that deep laughter out of me. A loyalty card, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, you know. I, I, know I firstly want to say we need Ofsted. I do think schools should be inspected. In fact, I would be brave enough to say I think on an annual basis, which I don't think many people would. Blimey. Say, and I think I, I think a lot of people would associate me with absolutely detesting Ofsted. And although that is largely true, <laughs> I, I probably just want to take a a moment to explain the rationale um firstly from a safeguarding perspective we have schools in our system who have not been inspected for 15 16 years so i wouldn't want to send my child there i don't know about you um and uh, of course this is not disrespecting our teachers and our profession our teachers uh, do incredible work and, and you know often make kids safe and secure but there is a 0.1% where you have extreme safeguarding issues, illegal schools, dare are, say, abuse where parent, teachers cross the line and have relationships with children, etc. So, in terms of an annual process, schools should be safeguarded on an annual basis. How that happens, I have no idea. Whether it's through local authority services, hubs, or Ofsted, you know, and you can do a lot, you know, with the pandemic now through remote learning. There are certain things that Ofsted could do remotely, you know, website checks, uh, collecting documents, which is pretty much what they start to do when they start to raise the alarm bell that we're going to come and inspect your school. Um, My own experience is I've had some good Ofsteds, some horrific ones. I've had all the badges as a teacher and as a school leader. And I've pretty much done the same thing all the time. You know, obviously my content evolves, my strategies, my thinking. But the core basics of in the classroom, I teach this, kids do that, I make them do this, they do that. Outstanding or special measures, it's largely the demographics of your school. I know there's a lot more complicated things that go on, but the framework changes and the people that come to inspect your school are different personalities also. My... Particular beef, I suppose, is the reliability and validity of graded schools and then its impact on one-word objectives that get published to the general public. Um, You know, parents outside of education, so not parent-teachers, but general parents have very little understanding of what goes on in a school. You know, if I think back to the Ofsted survey, for example, they asked parents about quality of teaching, for example, as one of the key questions. They've never been in a classroom. So, you know, it's taken me 25 years to get close to evaluating quality of teaching. How is a parent gonna ever know that answer without having actually been in a classroom other than just a grand tour of the school? So there's lots of things they could do better. And although I uh, admire their recent escapades into the world of research and their recent connections with the profession thanks to social media, there are a lot more things they could do um to reduce the gaming of the system and the high stakes and yes they are doing lots of things and a lot more people are reporting that it's a nice conversation and um you know it's been very supportive process but those people only say that if they get a good or outstanding and very you know and there are one or two stories where yes it requires improvement but ofsted we're very good so we are getting to a better place But if you choose to work in a particular school setting, the chances are it's much harder for you to achieve a good or outstanding grade. So whether that grade is reliable is another thing. But it's not a coincidence. If you work in a tough school, you're going to get a tough rating. So my my provocation is why choose to work in that school if it puts your career at risk? Because let's face it. Head teachers will be chopped if they get um, inadequate in some schools. Governing bodies, multi academy trusts, especially with all the um, accountability rhetoric of uh, schools today—that football manager syndrome—and you'll see a huge exodus of teachers. You know, if your school's inadequate, whether it's the leadership fault or it's quite a shock to the system, and it's going to impact your own CV and your own teaching career, well, I'm off. You know, so there's a lot. I, I've been spending a long time, particularly the last four or five years, researching Ofsted, uh, publications, documents, have they actually improved standards or is it just goalpost shifting? Um, What impact does it have on teacher headcount, admissions? Why do they not evaluate school funding? Um, Of course it would expose the disparity across the system, which is what the Department for Education don't want highlighted, which again questions the independence from government. Um ofsted is an independent organization but we have to ask are they doing more value um, uh more harm than uh, more good than harm is the expression and are they value for money
1: and what's your take on that currently
0: well they are working with less resources less funding less people they're expected to do more uh, we've got more pupils in our system more schools being built and more teachers so it you know sitting on the table with Andrew Spielman, it's a harder job. And, you know, I certainly couldn't do it. And I wouldn't want to. But I've certainly as a taxpayer, and as a teacher, I do, I am entitled to have a say, um, as, as, as we all are. And, you know, there'll be a lot of people that are quite happy with the current model. There'll be one or two people profiting from the current model. You know, you just think back a number of years before they got rid of all the kind of third party. Was it Circo who did the additional inspector supplies? Um, You know, the people will be profiting from the outstanding badges, whether I'm printing the banner for your school gates or I get a gong from the Queen because I've got 12 schools that are outstanding. Um... And then there'll be people that will lose their job or mental health or you know, you'll know, you have one or two situations where people will m- may commit suicide or are taking, I've met several head teachers on my travels last few years that are taking antidepressants just to get through the day from the result of the stress and the the gaming of the league tables or Ofsted's coming, we better pull our socks up. So we have to do better, I, 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 I'm certainly not one that wants lower standards, I've never met a teacher that does want lower standards actually, um, we all want high standards. We all know that Ofsted has a place and serves a purpose, but right now it's not—it's on its way. But I think we've got quite a way to go yet towards more of a, an intelligent accountability model. Mm,
1: I agree with you there. I'm quite surprised to hear that you're actually quite balanced in your in your appraisal of Ofsted, and it's very fair. But because um, I've seen you, you refer to them as the Grim, the Grim Reaper.
0: The Grim previously. Reaper. Previously, yes. <laughs> well, they, they they end people's careers. Yeah, And hence the Grim Reaper. They, I, uh, I have, no, although teacher took it was a big influence on my workload, my mental health, and my opportunities that I was often saying no to because I was working full time. I would still be in my same school today if Ofsted didn't put my last school on special measures. I have no doubt about that. So I attribute them to ending my school career because the impact on the school. It's 150 year history, the best results in its history for two years on a row. The head teacher, uh, all the teachers that I work with, who uh, the majority have since left since the uh, school has transitioned. Um, and I don't dispute the school is doing certain things, but there's lots of, uh, uh, I'll use the word rumors uh, loosely, uh, about off rolling and uh, bullying and whatever else. And it goes on in some schools, and it's definitely gone on in uh, the one that I had since left. Um, and that will be hard to hear for one or two people, but um, that that's the reality. Whether, um, you know, Ofsted did the right thing for our school, uh, the, the jury's out, in my opinion. I've got lots of different um, bits of evidence and stories. I even went to such an extreme to uh, request all the freedom of information papers of the entire inspection. And I evaluated my own teaching and learning CPD section as well as the data. And there's lots of things that should be questioned. Um, the, the the crux of the matter is can three or five inspectors uh, reliably turn up to a complex organization for a day or a day and a half and gauge what's taking place when it takes school leaders years to get to a place where they can evaluate and do the right things and then deploy their resources to get the best for their teachers and their kids and parents um, so You know, thinking about some solutions, you know, uh, if I go back to one of my first offset experiences, um, you get six weeks notice. I don't think that's great because a bit like when the queens come and you paint all the walls and everything smells nice and you update the display. So you have a six week frenzy, which isn't good for anybody. And it gives a bit of a false scenario. But I think about... Are still one of the earlier models i had a subject expert with me as part of the ofsted team in the school who worked alongside me for mm. a week and we'd have a conversation in the evening i'd go home and think about it I'd come back the next day with certain resources to show and explain so there was a bit more of a chance to have a deep conversation in pairs with my team with this inspector to unpick the design technology aspects of the school and how it supported the greater good before that inspector went off to feedback to the rest of the team and i really enjoyed that process, and it was a lot more powerful, a lot more developmental for me as a teacher. I mean, what let's face it, what Ofsted report actually leads to uh, impact for teachers apart from a whole school having a vision and priority? Um, d- does impact d- do Ofsted reports have an impact on school standards that will show me the evidence, other than let's just move the goalposts or the statistics? If you look at the number of schools. Um, graded outstanding in goods and RI, they're broadly the same year on year. So are make offste- it <laughs> making any difference to standards or are we just moving the goalposts each time? So th- I've got a real problem with these one-word objectives. Uh, you know, the reports, you had very detailed reports, you know, 60, 100-page SEFs that school leaders used to write to give to the inspectors to read, that would just be an utter waste of time. Um, and. You know, the reports are a lot more concise now, probably much more parent friendly. But even Ofsted's own research recently, um, 19% of parents read the full report. So all that money and time being spent writing reports to inform parents, but none of them are reading it. I know as a teacher, if I move to your school, first thing I'm going to do is read the Ofsted report. So we're, are, are we as professionals feeling the, the system itself and giving more um Prevalence, I suppose the word to, to the system itself rather than we all know that if you get a good or understandable pat you on the back and yeah look at us and well done everyone we work really hard meanwhile the school down the road requires improvement yeah look at us we've just been got we've just got requires improvement come to our school uh, let's put a banner on the gates and come and work with us so we've got a bit of a a problem in terms of school improvement and how best to fix it for everybody without it having unintended consequences, which I think is some of the things that I'm alluding to. So my doctoral research, I suppose, is um, unpicking what impact Ofsted grades, the key word, outstanding RI, that Mm. type of stuff, has on teacher population. So there's a bit of research that suggests that if you get special measures, you'll lose at least 5% of your workforce, if not more. If you're outstanding, no surprise, everyone stays. Um, what impact does it have on house prices? Well, there you go. So that then links to poverty and dare I say crime in the community. So, you know, you can have two schools on a street, might get the same grades, one might get one different. So then what impact does that have on admissions? Well, it doesn't take a, a professor or a scientist or a detective to work out that if that school's got outstanding and that one's got special measures, where are we gonna send our kids? But you get the odd parent, um, who might buck the trend and say well, I know the school really well. I really believe in what they're trying to do uh, I really pleased with what they're doing with my child. I'll send my child there So that does exist, which I guess quashes the notion that special measures outstanding what actually does that overall judgment have On teacher choices of schools. I, I believe every school is good I believe all schools have hardworking teachers doing the right things with lots of complexities and variations um so i i i think the essence of it i'd like to see the abolition of the graded the graded terms yeah.
1: Could not agree more. The grading is is really problematic and it nearly always follows the data, doesn't it? There is if you've seen that, there's an incredible graph I've seen, which is like prior attainment. The kids' prior attainment before they joined the school with their current attainment. And unsurprisingly, that's almost like a perfect positive correlation. And then they color code the uh the the dots on the graph according to what grade they got. And it's just like all the outstanding mm-hmm. schools had high prior attainment. But they, and and the, you know I mean it's almost funny. But like you, I've had each of the badges, and one of my colleagues in my department once got. We, he was once observed twice within the same Ofsted inspection, and he got a one and a four in the same in the same inspection. Like, well, so which one is he then? You know, it's just, it's just yeah. it just gives it just makes it a joke. And I've, you know, if if you if you were to submit an Ofsted report to a to a decent quality education research journal, it would never make it through peer review because the methodology, like you say. It's just whacked, and 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 yeah. you know, th- th- but there's some hope there. You know that that um, like offset has has shown quite a lot of interest recently in you know learning about research, and they started to publish these research reports. I would really like them to do some social research methods training, just to find out just like how that yeah. this one to four scale. Not only is it unhelpful, and it leads to all of these problems, like you say, teachers leaving, house prices spiking, has this chaotic effect, but it just has Mm -hmm. zero scientific validity or reliability. We've recently moved away from grading individual teachers although to my understanding I mean in my experience at school that I was at we got rid of the grades essentially there's this the school was still grading teachers they just weren't telling the teacher what their grade was anymore so they still had a sort of like a, a Yeah list. well
0: I've been through all that journey uh, myself and a few others particularly through social media I'd say influential instrumental in you know I was one of the first few to get a, a round table at Offset, I suppose 2000 and, uh, 13, and essentially we then recommunicated the teaching and learning overall grade uh, that had filtered through to school leaders, where it then transferred to the observation form, where I come and observe you, and I was measuring whole school teaching and learning now on the individual teacher, hence the grading of lessons. So long story store is we we helped that get abolished. And the first thing I did as a deputy head in a new school was abolished it immediately in a school that was traditionally um, loved grading school uh, teachers. And some of the teachers, particularly the outstanding ones were quite happy with their grades and it was all they ever knew. Um, So taking that out from under their feet straight away was refreshing, really interesting to see the impact. You know, a lot of teachers had the guests of freedom some used it as the opportunity never to pull their socks up and um, some departments may observe more or observe less there was a whole different range of things so gradually we started to reintroduce a a, a bit of a learning methodology won't well, work well even better if but it was still a bit of a grade in some respects i like this about your teaching i wouldn't teach that in your lesson teach it the way that i would recommend so they're both very much unreliable models. So I've done a lot of work um, recently, a lot of thinking through Cambridge University and a bit with Mark Quinn at UCL, thinking about reducing observational bias to improve lessen observation reliability, but ultimately the observation having an impact on the teacher quality of their delivery. Uh, and I've got a really good model that I'm slowly sharing with schools that I'm quite proud of. And I do know that when I share it, it really is a eureka moment for the school leaders that I work with. And I think, you know, the observation process should be shared more widely. So it's something I've just written about in my new book, trying to spread the word. Um, you know, we all suffer from bias. We all have cognitive dissonance. We're all, we can't all be subject experts of every subject. So when we're putting a an inspector environment role or a school leader role we're often going into lots of different subjects trying to evaluate quality you know but when we talk about learning we have to say well learning what maths what are we learning in maths equations okay what type of equations quadratic equations okay what do you want us to evaluate Uh, how i pose questions okay so at least we've got a bit more focus then we can actually start to judge that in the lesson rather than The default model for inspectors or school leaders is let's just do a learning walk and we'll look in a few books, talk to some kids, and we'll try and come up with a a roundabout way of what we think is happening. And we'll use some cliches or some roundabout statements to say that's great and that's not so great when actually the detail and accuracy is, is lacking substantially.
1: Yes, yeah. Absolutely. So there are some solutions here. So um, you were talking about uh, having smaller scale, local level developmental, more regular, like annual, um, annual um, sort of things, even if that's only with, you know, to keep a finger on the pulse of safeguarding, you're talking about some more proactive, um, you know, approaches to observation, and getting rid of the, the grades, that all seems like it's actually quite doable.
0: Um, It is but it's not doable at the moment because Ofsted don't have enough HMI first of all They rely on 70% of the school leadership workforce to conduct the inspections So if I sign up for that, I'm Yes, I'm supporting the profession. Yes, I'm learning from the profession But I am also benefiting my own school and then if you think about how those inspectors are selected i if i if i'm a great head teacher i've been doing it 20 years but i choose to work in that tough school that's labeled ri i can't be an inspector so already there's a a a kind of a split between the profession that you're good but you're not good because you work in that type of school that's labeled ri um if you dig into some offset data you'll see that often leadership is stronger in tougher schools labeled RI compared to other tougher schools that might be labeled good or outstanding. You know, so you need good leadership to turn around these schools. And there's tons of research, honestly, James, I read so much about, you know, turning around failing schools, the methodology, the reliability, the impact, the long-term impact on standards. it's, It's severely lacking and it's up for grabs. It's just, we've got so many things to discuss in education and so many priorities. Never mind given the pandemic, that Ofsted just gets away with tweaking at the sidelines rather than kind of instrumental radical reform that's gonna make a big difference for parents for kids. That, you know, it's my belief that I think Ofsted grades widen inequality rather than what it hopes to do is narrow it. Um and I, I think we need to do more. So I think the peer model, more funding for Ofsted to allow more people to inspect. I think given all schools in different networks whether it's through multi-academy trusts or regional or through kind of local um i i think more opportunity for schools to come together to share best practice and reward schools for collaborating rather than for competing um you know can we get to a place where schools are rewarded for reduction in exclusions where uh, the schools rewarded for completion rate rather than we've off rolled 22 kids but they've all got grade a's or or grade nines rather than well we've kept all these kids throughout their entire school life they might not all have got grade nines but they've all completed school and they've all accessed the curriculum and you know whether we look at data over three years so we get an average rather than we get this once a year league table stuff and then every year we get the bell curve model working um with schools ranked and and ranked and filed with one another each time and then every year we go yeah we got the best results ever oh well we won't say anything on social media this year because we didn't get the best results ever but next year we might and then we'll say it and so yeah it's kind of like we're sticking two fingers up to one another well i got good or outstanding and you didn't so you know sod you but next year you might be lucky yeah so So uh, it's a a brutal analogy, I know, and it's a lot more, I I could talk about more more solutions, um, but I think it needs to change. And I know I'm not alone, but I also know on the other side, there are a lot of people that love the grades and want to keep them because it's what they're used to or what they believe parents want
1: yeah yeah you always get people annoyingly who disagree with you don 't you <laughs> a frustrating yes. feature of life um I, I would definitely like to like to see uh increase increase the metrics like you say start to look at other things start to look at off rolling start to look at mental health um and bullying and so on that would be that would be really welcome and and it 's so obvious that the marketization of education you know, in in an increasingly deregulated market, which is what happened with the Academies Trust and the getting rid of local authorities, Obviously, people are going to start cutting corners and gaming the system. That's what that's mm-hmm. what happens in an unregulated marketplace. Like, who could have predicted that that would happen? So, exactly. So, so <laughs> um, okay. It occurs to me that we went straight into the rethinking education um, bit of the conversation with a problem, right? With Ofsted, and I usually like to try and start with the positive stuff. What do we want to see more of? So, I know that there are other things you want to talk about. You mentioned academies in our preliminary chat yesterday. We'll, mm-hmm. Which we'll come on to, but let's let's go to the positives. I want to ask you now about what would you, what do you see that's happening out in the in the whole ecosystem that you think is really good stuff that you think is worth celebrating, that's worth shining a light on, and that you'd like to see a lot more of.
0: Um, the the most obvious is uh, teachers' engagement with uh, academic research or educational research because you know the it's quite limited. The great research that does come out tends to say the same thing. So Mr. McGill, the cynical teacher, has been teaching a long time. Oh, we know this. We've, do- we've been doing this for years. Well, of course we have. But we get a bit more immersed with the cognitive science. We get other academics, professors, journals, publications uh, given as best practice. You know, teachers are time poor people. Uh, they don't have a lot of funding. They often have insufficient training. So they often need to plug and play their ideas the next day and focus their best efforts. So they don't have time to waste. So sometimes great CPD within schools can unlock people's potential. The person that you work alongside that mentor or that coach can really, you know, uh, can rekindle your teacher mojo. But I think uh, uh, largely attributed to social media, there's been a huge explosion, whether it's just one teacher on social media who takes it back to their school or is an entire army of teachers from a school on social media just sucking up tons of research and tweets and ideas um, and engaging with uh, best practice and you know what cognitive science says or or academic literature and, and using it back in the school to just talk about teaching and learning and pedagogy and i think it's brilliant and you know just talking about the books the amount of Books being written by practicing teachers is uh, is astounding, and the the depth and breadth of content, um, the range of voices, um, the access to materials uh, is great. Um, however, um, you know, you ask how many NQTs have read uh, a book on literature. Well, they might have done through their teacher training, but are they doing it personally and professionally? Um, is another question. But you know, that dialogue changing slowly. I think there's a lot more. Support for new teachers um, than there has ever been before um, as we know that you know new teachers uh, still leave the profession prematurely long before they've really mastered the classroom. so we've got a lot of work to do there. but I, I think that you know hopefully this research starts to filter into supporting our newer teachers profession and keeping them in for it for longer. The challenge as we know is how the government support us, uh, how, how government support schools and our teachers, To be the best that they can be and not leave that classroom prematurely is the challenge. So, yes, research, books, podcasts such as yours are all making a big difference to um, teacher thinking, I think, is is a wonderful thing.
1: I absolutely agree. It's really welcome, isn't it, to see... Um, like one of the first things that I ever wrote about education was about the need to sort to of free it from political tinkering right that the The way that education policy is linked to the to the electoral cycle and that each secretary of state mm-hmm. wants to come in and, and put their stamp on it and People at the time were sort of saying, you know that you could say that that's true, but also the teaching profession when I wrote that in sort of twenty eleven or something the teaching profession didn't have its house in order you know and there was lots of sort of quite flaky things happening in schools and it does really feel that in the last sort of 10 years or so largely enabled by twitter and blogging and social media and all the things that you're talking about and organisations like teach meets and research ed and loads of different organisations mm-hmm. that are happening that the the profession is becoming a lot more confident a lot more like a self assured a lot more footed. And it feels like we're in a much stronger position now to to, Mm -hmm. you know, if and when we can get to the point where we start to think about how we could devolve some of the um, the political politicization of education, maybe through a select committee or maybe somehow devolving uh, some aspects of it to schools themselves. Um, it feels like we're in a much stronger place than we were just a few years ago. And credit where credit's due, you know, you mentioned um, Mark Quinn earlier, who's my, my good friend and colleague at UCL uh, at the Institute. Uh, he's been involved recently working closely with the DFE on the Early Career Teacher Framework, the teacher development programme, mm-hmm. which has been launched this year nationally as a pilot, and it goes national next year. And it's absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. Like the quality of the resources, the, it's a two-year induction program the quality of the training resources and for the mentors which has always been a big blind spot the fact that mentors have Mm -hmm. a lot of power uh, in making or breaking a trainee and very little training or experience or expertise often so that's been a really good thing that the dfe have done recently
0: yeah but you know the the issue with all of that uh, for me will be that if the school doesn't give that mentor or the rqt that time to do those things and you know, funding pressures or, a, you know, a bully leader or someone that wants to control the timetable in every shape or form, if I don't have that allocated time that I'm entitled to, to plan, to mark, to do whatever else, or I, I'm a mentor but I've got to do it in my free time, well, well, there's the issue and that's pretty much how most of the education system has operated for years. Um, so, fingers crossed, this this filters through in the capacity um that's been given is deployed best where it's needed, I suppose. Mm,
1: time and money is the recurring theme, isn't it? It keeps coming back. It is. <laughs> um, so is there anything else in the positives column before we get back to?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the recent thinking of curriculum, you know, uh, I, I've thought about curriculum long before Ofsted started to talk about it. And I guess, you know, their focus at least gives everyone a renewed focus on teacher pedagogy and decision-making, but we've talked uh, on another podcast about the Department for Education and how they may shape teacher decision-making or agency from a distance. So, you know, the grand scheme of things, English teachers compared to other OECD countries have very little autonomy over decisions. Although at a ground level, yes, we can choose our own scheme of work or our syllabus, but how we teach and, and those types of things. It's great to see all those being discussed and how it fits in with schema and cultural capital and cognitive load. I think all that's wonderful. Uh, I, I mentioned the research, but you know, the workload's been a big um, thing for me uh, and teacher wellbeing. So I guess my mark plan teach work been quite synonymous for doing lots of things to support people with that. Uh, We've got a long way to go. I think workload will always be an issue in schools. Um, But but schools are being better at getting rid of lots of the silly fad nonsense. So detailed lesson plans, graded lessons. Not everyone, but we are getting uh, much better at doing those things. You know, three-page reports to parents, and we've actually got no data to suggest that actually do the parents read your reports. Um, Detailed lesson plans for trainees and actually... They spend more time writing the lesson plan compared to the actual lesson length itself. Um, so all those things are slowly, slowly um, evolving. But I think they'll just always be exacerbated given the nature of kind of groupthink and everything else we've talked about. Um, the nature of working in a stressful industry. What I'm most reassured about recently is, just if you just go back 10 years, you'd struggle to find much any much research academically on teacher or mental health and well-being and given that we're all much better at talking about mental health um uh, it's my belief that the schools that are talking about teacher mental health and genuinely creating the conditions for teachers to manage it and thrive in a stressful career uh, i do think over time as the rhetoric with league tables and offset may evolve that those schools that will become a higher performing will be redefined as these teachers stay in this school they're happier uh, you know frameworks such as investors in people that evaluate teacher voice appraisal professional development and then triangulate these sources over quite a deep audit inspection process compared to ofsted's methods you're going to start to see schools that i think in the future um, the school we know that schools that have happier teachers get better outcomes for their teachers as well as the kids so um you know provocation to all of us who support schools as the governor or, or, or as a as a school leader um you know create the conditions where teachers can thrive and and not survive but thrive uh, and be happier and be aware of their own workload and how to deal with it rather than uh you know your kind of quick fixes that kind of disappear and if another leadership team comes in it all starts again those types of things uh so we're in a better place with teacher mental health, but it's far from over, you know, outside of the Twitter world, you know, whether you get the odd story that goes viral or you talk to one or two teachers on the ground. um, There's still a lot of toxicity in some places. There's still a lot of stupid decisions being made and assumptions, you know, uh, appraisals, a fascination of mine, Uh, we're light years away from it, but I'm slowly advocating a bit like a mini Viva model, Mm. but squeezed into a year where I pose a research question and that's my appraisal target, but it's critiqued by my line manager and peers. And then I go off and research and disseminate the findings in CPD sessions. It's a, it's a simple, easy fix, rather than there's your three targets, outcomes CPD if you're lucky, and one for your classroom, <laughs> and I'll come and observe it three times a year. Um, it's outdated. So I'm pleased to report there are a few schools I'm working with that are now using that model that I've talked about in my book, Just Great Teaching. And that's from my own experience as a leading whole school appraisal in three large secondary schools with about two or three hundred staff, uh, so collectively maybe six or seven hundred staff, and never ever really getting it right. You know, I can I can create spreadsheets and monitor everyone's targets and then put up on a spreadsheet of who's filled in the targets, but what impact does it have on teacher professionalism? Well well, there no one knows. Um, so if I could research my own question inquiry mini viva critiques over the year and i get excited about appraisal rather than oh bloody hell i've got to upload my targets because ross is going to check next week and i'll be lucky if i get a pay decision um we need to move away from that model but that's you know marketization uh, academization, competition um you know teachings are sharing relationship-based profession and we need to do our best efforts to get it back to being like that
1: yeah, absolutely. Because children aren't widgets, are they? They're like they're not <laughs> they're widgets. They're little no. complicated people, <laughs> and uh, and you know that like marketization of the school system is just the wrong model you know performance related pay like you say like it encourages people to stop sharing resources it's just totally wrong headed and i i really appreciate all of the work that you've done in this area over the years and i know that you've been you know very keen on you know trying to reduce teacher workload which is one of the the number one re- you know reasons for teachers struggling and to Mm-hmm. to leave the profession as so many do and uh, you know one of the first things that i came across of yours was the five minute lesson plan which was uh, i loved it and i, I still do you know that was it absolutely mm-hmm. cha- changed my uh my teaching practice um to help me just to think very clearly about what it was that I was trying There's to a do.
0: story about that that not a lot of people know but um i'm sure, do you know john Bailey, the original teachers behavior guru no oh the guy who was so on john- teachers tv Teachers too, yeah, TV, okay, yeah. Okay. so we are go going back to a certain era, so he's a bit like the UK version of Bill Rogers. Um, so John Bailey, um, who I've known fondly for 15, 20 years, part of my own teacher training, um, and Catherine Birbel Singh, who, who I'm sure you'll know, they both came together and created the five-minute plan. Um, and working with John, he brought it to me and left it on my table, and I, did, I, I played around with my own classroom for years, thought, this is great, and then just using my own thinking and my use of technology, I thought, well, uh, in fact, actually, I tweeted it before an Ofsted inspection, I've just scribbled this five minute lesson plan for an Ofsted inspector, and I I use the word viral, but it it was really seen and and heard on Twitter at the time, this is 2013, when you had to give detailed lesson plans to your inspectors. so and this is me. I'd, I'd seen I'd seen this resource for about five or six years at the time. So this is when it started to be shared by me on my channel, and then it started to literally uh, be sucked up everywhere. So last time I checked on the TES and on my website, it's probably pushing two million downloads, which is which is crazy. So you know, for every pound, <laughs> um, but it's been wonderful to see it be used and adapted by loads of people all around the, all around the world. Uh, to still hear stories from people like yourself or an experienced teacher who nearly left the profession, he turned around the lunch queue and said to me, your five minute lesson plan stopped me leaving the profession. Wow. Uh, to millions of NQTs that have used it as they've moved away from the detailed planning that their institute tells them to use or their school to then more of a autonomous free thinking model in their own classrooms. It's been such a powerful tool to unlock uh, teacher potential and thinking for classroom planning. and. Uh, it's evolved into all aspects of school life now. So I think I've got about 40 of them now. Assessment, questioning, an Ofsted plan. There's an Ofsted plan there as well. Uh, when the phone rings, what, what to go through when you're talking about uh, the Ofsted inspection with an inspector that's knocking on your door. Um, so there's about 40 incarnations of the five-minute plan. All it is is putting complex aspects of school life into a five-minute thought process that you scribble on. Uh, to just kind of help that cognitive load and they've been really popular so they're all on my site um, and i uh, saying it out loud I probably should do more to kind of share those because they just lurk on my site and I don't really do much about spreading them anymore but the five minute le- lesson plan um, is a well-oiled machine uh, the vast majority of the Twitter world are familiar with it but there's a lot of new teachers in the profession who join the profession who aren't so once or twice a term, I just tweet it out just to kind of make sure that people see it. And um, I've seen loads of people use it for interviews and get jobs and all sorts. So it's a great, great tool, but uh, inspired by Burbos and Bailey, I suppose, uh, two great educational thinkers of our time. Yes,
1: indeed. That is, that is news to me. Uh... Thank you. And and just while we're in positives, I think that we mentioned Mark Quinn earlier. I think it would be good to talk about the verbal feedback project that you did with him yes. while we're talking about workload.
0: Yeah. So, I, again, going back workload and um, Ofsted bias and my life as a deputy head walking around school into loads of different subjects. I didn't really understand trying to impose a teaching and learning policy feedback marking all the nonsense about verbal feedback stamps and the lack of research and what have you. I was really keen, so I started on my Twitter channel and I had 110 schools sign up in six countries. So I tried on my own without really having an academic hat on to collect data from all these schools in terms of you know, a sample class and a control class conducting verbal feedback strategies that I was promoting through Mark Planteach. Long story short was on my travels, I came to UCL to do a job and I mentioned to Sandy Sandy Carley at the time, who was leading the kind of teacher takeaway workshops, look, I've got this interesting project, I've got loads and loads of data, Um, would you be willing to consider the, the research proposal as a project, and long story short is Mark jumped on board with a few others, and we got 13 teachers together in seven disadvantaged schools. Over five days of that last academic year. And these schools are notoriously labelled as disadvantaged, high pupil premium numbers, but also in schools where you're more likely to tell your teachers to mark once a week and use the purple pen of progress or whatever it would be. So it was very reassuring to get these school leaders to allow these teachers out. And essentially, I showed the teachers the strategies. Mark. Uh, work with the teachers in terms of ethics and data collection and thinking more critically as a teacher researcher. And I guess what I was also trying to advocate was raising the profile of action research in the classroom from a kind of pedagogical uh, subjectivism-type stance compared to the Ofsted approach, which is more bit scientific or positivism, where that's the evidence because there's hard data, whereas actually, I know when I mark my books or say this in class that it has an impact on Ross but because it's not hard data traditionally, it's not viewed as robust research. So I wanted to raise that profile of classroom research shaping teacher Great. thinking, and long story was that it did. Um, so the word slowly getting out, and you know I still see verbal feedback stamps going on, but um, every school I've visited, so over 200 schools, 30,000 teachers, Marking, when I conduct workload surveys face-to-face through a bit of software, marking is the number one, when we talk about teacher workload, marking is the number one reason. Um, and if you're with different types of schools or different audiences, there's one or two little nuances, but marking's the number one e- reason. So all school leaders, people listening, um, if you want to get any good long-term wins with your teachers is do anything and everything you can to reduce the marking burden of your staff. Um, so I've been reassured to see how the report, once it's been published, has gone out to different schools and the teachers involved are also advocating the research and its methods. And there's a podcast I listened to the other day talking about it. So that was nice. So it is having a big difference on the marking burden and just changing this narrative that why do we think written feedback is the best form of feedback? You know, you've got written feedback, verbal feedback, non-verbal feedback, feedback, feed up and feed forward. So there's already six types. And, you know, if I talk about written feedback, well, I can provide written feedback, non-verbal written feedback, um, verbal feedback, well, I can do it in different ways as well. So there's many different nuances within the types of feedback that a teacher can do. And uh, we know that the research suggests that the quality of feedback matters. So there's the challenges. Developing teacher scripts, how can I provide feedback verbally in 30 seconds or in a in a book to help a kid uh, read it and then make an impact on their studies and, and then times 30 kids and if you're secondary school you've got three or four hundred kids and if you're in a traditional uh, subject with a lot of writing you know getting through an english exam paper is going to take you an hour um if not more times 30. so it's i think the ultimate goal is to kind of address the 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 exam board once so in terms of coursework or exam production and you know, thinking about how we can change the way that we assess. So I was involved in a research study a number of years ago, comparative assessment, uh, where you just compare kids' work uh, very quickly. And uh, if you, you could, th- at least through a screen, you could uh, sample kids' work two or three seconds. You can get through about 250 student portfolios, and then those those rank those my judgments are compared to another teacher's judgments, and then very quickly. You can get a sample size, and then you apply the assessment grade after. So that's comparative judgment. It's relatively unknown. It's been around for about 80, 90 years. Uh, I think it's either Alistair Thurston or Louis Thurston. I'll have to check his name. 1927, it's a great model for robust and more reliable assessment. So it's another form of trumping written feedback. Of course, written feedback has a place, and it needs to happen, but we seem to be obsessed in our schools that everything has to be written down if it's not written down it's not happened and if i come to check it if i can't see it written down then it certainly hasn't happened so you've got a lot of teachers having to track back on what they've taught over the academic year with stamps with marking codes with kids writing feedback oh thank you miss for this i'll do this and then the teacher says well well done ross you've done this now think about that so you get that triple marking dialogue which uh, I guess it was trumped a number of years ago, but it still manifests itself in different school environments, different subjects, different circumstances, different pressures. Uh, whether it's always going to be around, I suspect so, because it's just the nature of the profession, and if I join the profession as an inexperienced new teacher, I've got still a lot to learn. So whether I get exposed to the research or some good training, it, it, it is a hit and miss. So we need to get to a place where As we develop the teacher standards, some of these workload myths and strategies are immersed through the teacher standards so that everyone gets off to a really good start rather than spending the first five, ten years of their career making countless mistakes and learning along the way because they've been so consumed with mastering the classroom that they haven't really got off to a good place in the first, they haven't got off to a good start from the beginning because they've been so consumed with just trying to do the mechanics of their job. Yes. Um, I mean, I think it's it's marking for
1: accountability, isn't it? And I think that the verbal feedback stamp is probably the the ultimate example of that, where teachers are required to to put a stamp in the book to say to show that they've had a a non <laughs> a non written communication. And I was appalled. There was a teacher tap did a poll on this last week, and they was like, how many of you are required to do this? And I, from memory, I think it was forty five percent which yeah, is absolutely, shocking, yeah.
0: and they get... Uh, it's more, I believe it's more prevalent in primary than secondary.
1: Yeah, Um and so to come back to the to the verbal feed, feedback study that you did with Mark just very briefly, I know that it can take a little while, we probably don't need to go into it now, but it takes a little bit of getting used to, sort of thinking thinking through what verbal feedback looks like in the classroom. But the findings, as I recall from that study, were that it didn't have any detrimental effect on the children's learning over a term or two terms or whatever the study period was, no. but the teachers clawed back something like four hours or more of time a week.
0: Yeah. So what, what the, what they reported was they spend less time traditionally marking and then use that time to plan better lessons. And as a result, they could meet the needs of their children better. And as a result, it improves kids' attendance, behavior, punctuality, punct- participation in class reward points on sims uh low exclusions there was a whole raft of data that came through so the critique of the research was how do i evidence verbal feedback well there's my point let's define outcomes is it punctuality attendance or exclusions and then let's see what an impact it has when teachers spend more time i think if we replace the word feedback and put assessment Uh, Verbal assessment, which is what teachers do on the feet every day, asking questions, providing a bit of feedback data, whether it's written verbally or through a visualizer or through non-verbal cues such as pointing over there and look at this display. Um, When we start to reliably evaluate these and have comparisons from data from different classes and different points of the year, we can start to see if we consciously do certain methods outside of the traditional form of written marking, we can actually provide a huge body of research evidence to say, well, actually, God, the kids are participating in class a lot more. I feel happier. They're getting more reward points. They're turning up to class quicker on time. Um, there's your evidence rather than oh, there's the stamp in the book. Look, I did talk to my kids. I do talk to my kids in class, believe me. Um, so it's just trumping that and giving teachers an alternative. And if you go on, you know, Google Scholar, I know is a limited platform for searching academic um references but it's at least a good place to start so if you type verbal feedback what impact does it have on outcomes and what have you or then add in search terms such as subjects you'll struggle to find any evidence so i knew going back to that subjectivism versus positivism i knew when i was a teacher when i talked to kids in class it made a difference having to then write it down was a huge impact on my workload so i wanted to get some act academic research to show the kind of positive of the type spectrum that, look, here's the data. When I talk to kids, it does make a difference. So getting those 13 teachers to think critically, to develop their skills, to then help co-publish with Mark, uh, uh, a teacher-friendly piece of academic research, although it wasn't a a huge, huge study, um, it's a good starting point for the profession. And it has made a difference to those I know who have taken part of it. And also the schools that they work with and the ripple effect of other people reading it on social media. Um, so schools as far away uh, overseas that I've been working with, I've, I've really thought about it. The schools that I've worked with remotely through lockdown, uh, it's been part of the work that I've been sharing there. So it's, it gives people a bit of evidence to consider that actually not everything does need to be written down. So let's read it, consider it, take the bits that we think will be useful for our context. And see if we can support teacher mental health and that workload rather than perpetuate the bias again which then is validated by visiting inspectors because if you write in your policy you will stamp books and do this marking code and that's in your policy then ofsted will come and test it through your leadership and management if you want your teachers to do x well let's go and see if it's actually happening if it's not happening in james's classroom then it's not consistent And if it's not consistent, then leadership and management is not robust and strong enough. So therefore, you have a problem with leadership and management as well as your teaching and learning. So all the schools that I've visited, that accountability and, I guess, teacher agency versus autonomy, uh, not, uh, not one school I've been to can say that their teaching and learning is consistent across the board. So why? Well, you can't get all teachers doing the same thing. And it's certainly very difficult to evaluate it all when we go into classrooms with such broad uh, observation sheets. We have to narrow, well, quadratic equations, year eight maths lesson, comparison class to this sample class at this particular time when a stu- teacher asks an open question versus a closed question. Let's evaluate that and let's see what impact it has on behaviour, attendance or standards. Um, and then we can start to really home in. But teachers don't have time to do those things and certainly offset inspectors don't also. Uh, and that's that 's part of the problem with our profession, so all these kind of assumptions and myths just fuel all these silly ideas
1: absolutely and um And I think that it 's a really good example this This stuff that they're talking about about reducing teacher workload um, and that can happen at the level of the school leader or at the level of the classroom teacher that we actually are a lot sometimes a lot more powerful than we think in terms of the way that we can you know make decisions that shape our lives and that shape the lives of the of the children that we're teaching um i think that's a lovely example of that so um thank you for sharing that that's great
0: that's all right verbal feedback project everybody check it out
1: yeah i'll I'll share the report in the show notes um but it's a great example of of something that we can do to just make a positive difference Okay, um, academisation, I know you're keen to to talk about.
0: Yeah, um, well, where do we start? Well, let, you know, does academisation improve school standards? There's a good question. Has it uh, unleashed headteacher or teacher autonomy? Um, some people will say yes, some people will say no. So I think we should unpick it. Um, there's a great piece of research, I'm just getting it up in front of me, um, it was published a few years ago, 2016, and essentially evaluated 160 academies who had been labelled special measures and then their transition. And it's got a really interesting—you um, know—Ofsted now use the term "stuck schools." You know, disadvantaged schools, certain type of kids. You know, if I'm labelled you special measures, then you're potentially being labelled into another dec- decade of poverty in some respects. But Uh, There's a really nice interesting eight stage process that failing schools tend to go through. So I'll just uh, kind of go through them. The first one is um, the leadership and the objectives of the school. What tends to happen in a failing school, if you sack that head teacher, you're bringing up a new leader, so you appoint a new head teacher, and then the objectives are redefined, and in some respects, narrowed down. You will, you know, these standards, that type of stuff. Then what happens is that market perception, Uh, We rebrand the school, new colour, new uniform, new logo. Let's paint the building. And then we communicate to the public, uh, the parents, that there's been a new change in leadership and that this academy is going to save the day. Um, And this is not everywhere, but this is kind of the the kind of process that happens um, in this piece of research. The third stage is the resources. So you either expand various services or you improve admissions or you reshape the admissions, whether it's ostracizing some kids or not. You then ship in a huge lump sum of resources from your multi-academy trust because you benefit from having that trust and a larger deployment of resources from the government funds. You then think about student quality, so then you might exclude kids that don't toe the line, don't wear the uniform, don't behave, you know, behaviour policies revamped. We improve the admissions or the type of student that's attending the school. And then the school might, not, might also take on another school um, or acquire bits of land and all those types of things. Then the next stage, uh, I guess, stage five is this kind of structures. So the leadership structure, you centralise activities, uh, headquarter resources, you think about the facilities, so they're then often redeployed to the local community and all sorts of things through hiring. The next stage, stage six, is that, you know, think about stability, you then try to improve student attendance, behaviour, all those, you know, even teacher attendance in some respects. Then the next stage would be kind of capability of your kids as well as your teachers. And then the final stage would be introducing performance development systems and all these skills that were evaluated in the research, essentially they all went through that same model rebrand the school new leadership and all sorts but actually the research found that um it didn't actually make a long-term impact you know after 10 uh, how long have we been doing academization for um I, i actually worked in one of the very first academies um, 2000, uh, pre-2010, it came under the Labour government, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what we need to do now is if research on academisation, has it actually improved school standards or is it just folklore? You know, has academization academisation improved teaching, uh, exam scores, or is it just reshaping how schools compete and how governments deploy funding to save more money? um you know if i worked for the government you know many people do who have got experience in the office for national statistics or what have you Uh, if i want to save taxpayer cash and then politically say well actually we're spending less but our schools are performing better so we're not going to spend any more on teacher salary or school buildings that sounds great to some people in the public so why should we spend more if it doesn't make a difference when we can actually spend less and actually standards are rising you know you've got a a crowded curriculum right now. You've got teachers on uh, a kind of austerity type salary for the last 10 years, as well as schools. And if you're thinking about the PISA rankings and you believe in all that methodology, well, the likes of Nick Gibble say, well, actually, we're getting even better reading and maths and science schools than we've ever had before. So we should carry on with our methods and our uh, policies because they're working and we're spending less. So I think when we unpick the academisation, what's really happening is, you know, putting it simply, it says, are we trying to deprofessionalise the role of a teacher to more of an unqualified professional that any anyone can do it? Or is it someone that has a deep affinity with children and learning and their subject and can unlock a child's potential to their future career or transform a child that's got potentially a damaged background into a, a, a huge potential to be the next prime minister and what have you all the things that we can do in our schools um you know that uh, i believe the classroom is a very complex place it takes a, a real expert to understand what goes on inside a kid's head to get stuff in and help them retrieve it uh, you know our understanding of memory that is uh, something that takes a lifetime to learn and master Um, So I think recent policies, um, yes, better standards who, you know, I'll say it again, find me a teacher who wants lower standards. Uh, We all want high standards. Um, All schools do really well. I think some of the policies, um, you know, thinking about opaque and transparency and how the government have introduce certain things, you know, I I think it hinders innovation. What I'd be curious to know is, uh, I guess the vast majority of my career was under a Labour government and whether I was a happier teacher or had more money to spend is an interesting thought. But, you know, if Labour or Liberal, whoever comes into power next would be interested to evaluate as I get a bit older in my life, is does it just change the way that school quality is delivered? Or is it just political nonsense, just replicating the same old rhetoric and strategies that actually doesn't have, you know, why can't we be the best world uh, education system in the world? Why we could, we just obviously choosing not to because, you know, 65 million people, 8.8 million kids in the system, half a million teachers, it, um, it, it, it's a tough, it's a tough ask to get everyone pulling their socks up on the funding or resources that we have to get the best potential but uh, you know government play a big role in unlocking our true potential and giving us the autonomy but without it getting too political um here lies the the, the 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 kind of problem that we all have
1: yes i mean it seems to me that it's another example of what we were talking about earlier about like the marketization of education and a, a big part of the of the academy's program is to to strip away the local authority to strip away that sort of middle layer of of bureaucracy and um, and what used to be accountability and that's been replaced by multi-academy trusts um who um have been, you know somebody was describing the reason there's like a client group because like if you've got somebody who's who's sort of you know who's like a like a bad actor who's the chair of a multi-academy trust or who's a, yeah. a head within that that there's the, there's the same level of accountability isn't isn't there as it was when it was sort of yeah. local democratic. I
0: mean, I, I think in my own experience as a local authority frustrated with their CPD on offer or as a school leader, go to the local authority meeting and essentially One school would be struggling over there with exclusions and another school thriving and whatever and you'd all collectively agree that the funding for the year ahead was going to be spent in a certain way and you all took a hit, you know, swings and roundabouts. You benefited from some things and you didn't benefit from other decisions. So that, in some respects, local authority level kind of hindered your own autonomy as a school. Um you know, so there's the benefits to working in the local authority or one common goal, but I think it's the... It always comes back to how schools are ranked and filed through league tables that creates this um, competition between each other. And I think competition is a good thing. So again, I'm not quite sure what the solution would be, but in a local authority model, that competition, you stop using your resources, you have local authority readers saying, well, that school can have this, that school can't have that, and you're going to have to like it or lump it. This is where the resources are needed to use, whereas at least the academy model, does give you that freedom you get your direct funding you can choose to spend it how you want and there are certain accountability things that we have to follow but you know all the stories we see in the press with academization and spending funding and teacher professional standards and whatever else it'd be interesting to know if those stories and i suspect they did all happened under a local authority model because let's face it we got some we've got inadequate leadership in all aspects of society and we can all do better Um, I'd be interested to know if that always happened before recent policies and if it will continue to happen in the future. And I think where people are involved and there's a large um, interest from the general public in how things are deployed, I think we're always going to be wanting to improve things, we'll always make mistakes. Um, Whether we can learn from them and stop making the same mistakes is the critical question. So I guess the key question again is, does the academisation, apparent autonomy, actually improve school standards, or is it just a mask for spending less?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if it, is it even about spending less. It's hard to it's hard to understand. It's it's weird when you hear you know, I heard Nick Gibb giving a talk a while ago, and he was talking about the importance of research and evidence and he, it was at a research ed conference, but in that same speech, he talked about his support of the academies process. And I was, while he was speaking, I was looking up a recent article on the Telegraph and you know, the Tories, you know, house magazine. And it was um, saying, you know, there's no evidence that like you're saying, there's no evidence that academies are any better than non-academies. No. Um, and he also lent his support to grammar schools in that speech, which again, are really unevidenced. It seems to be that it seems like, it's therefore clear that it's more about ideology than it is about research and evidence that they genuinely seem to believe in the, the idea in the marketplace and this idea of competition and deregulation. If you strip away all this bureaucracy and accountability, then we'll, you know, free free schools up to sort of to do whatever they need to do. But even with all of the money that's gone into it and the new buildings. And some of the very predictable, unethical practices that we've seen around things like off-rolling and soft selection. And dear old uh, Warwick Mansell, who writes relentlessly about all of the cronyism and the dodgy money that's sloshing around in the system. And even after all of that has been taken into account, the, the research suggests that this is no better than not doing it. And I, I, it just feels like, I and mean, I don't really see how it saves money. It seems like it was a big sell-off, you know, like, like the, the, the school playing fields, the real estate got got handed over to academy sponsors who yeah. didn't have to I pay mean, anything think... for it. And that was like, given to them on like 200-year leases. Um, it's very complicated. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it, it is very complicated. You know, obviously it is more than money, but the, the research is really clear that the kind of standards of academies versus local authorities is, you know, negligible. It's very... It's very, you can't see any difference, really. Um, Obviously, there'll be disparities between regions, but the grand scheme, when you look at all of them, um, is pretty much the same. So it kind of begs the question, does academization improve standards? I I think I'm picking it a little bit more. You know, think of the autonomy to reshape your admissions policies. If there's certain leaders that choose to work in those schools and maybe have certain political beliefs, you think of grammar schools. An interesting thing is... Having worked in all these schools now professionally and as a teacher trainer, they're good people wanting to do the right things, but I think if we unpick kind of demographics, parental expectations, local house prices and stuff. You know, with all the narrative about Tories support the rich and Labour want the best for everyone, you kind of think, does the academisation model try to infiltrate this thinking, maybe at a kind of local level where schools can be rewarded through, I guess, excluding, challenging kids, and getting better exam results, which essentially maybe kind of filtering through this kind of them and us type stuff at a local level within institutions. So that school then takes on those kids that have been excluded but gets the special measures grade and then is penalized and then labeled a stuck school and then the school leader leaves and then the incoming MAT takes over the school and then this school who We're tough on behavior and whatever else, and we'll exclude these kids, and we get the good grades, and then we get the outstanding judgment, and then I get a gong, and then I get a second school. Uh, I I guess kind of looking at demographics and decision-making, you know, uh, just some of the thoughts. I don't actually know, um, you know, where where to start looking for the research. And I guess it's quite limited because this whole academization is only a decade or so in, so it's pretty early days, but we've got some data, but I I think ultimately what is happening really is that de-prefer, you know, looking at the professionalism of a teacher, the role of a teacher, you know, the introduction of unqualified status, um, school funding, all the issues that pop up with people spending X and government bailouts and all those types of things. There's something dark and sinister going on, but someone there at some level whether it's Dominic Cummins or someone else, so they'll have some kind of thinking of, well, if we do this, it will unleash this, and it will profit there, and kids will go here, and uh, be some clever old uh, um, bods that have done some kind of kind of policy thinking and thinking. Right, if we do this, you know, oh, it's Michael Gove and his his, his team, isn't it? Essentially, have taken it to another level. So. No, not some teachers might know that it was introduced under Tony Blair. So there's some thinking there, regardless of politics, about unleashing teacher autonomy or school autonomy. And I do think in some respects it has. You know, if I think back to some local authority meetings that I used to attend versus, oh, we're an academy, we'll make our own decisions, but within the limits of certain government legislation that we what we can and can't do, because we all need some statutory framework to follow. Um, I think what we we still need to find out is what impact has it had uh and I think if we just push all the extreme stories and noise to one side and look a bit deeper, it'd be interesting to find out what what purpose is it serving or what unintended consequences is it having on teachers communities and kids.
1: Yeah. So so you're essentially saying that we we, we just need to know more at this point. We're not, yeah, we don't, we don't Yeah, know. we're not looking at solutions to this. And it's very difficult to see, you know, in the last Labour manifesto, they were talking about bringing all schools back into local authority control. But what what limited understanding I have of the legal implications of that is that it would be a nightmare. It would cost like insane amounts of money because of the because of the you know the real estate and all of the just the legal nature of what would have to, have to happen yeah. to to reverse that. I mean,
0: what well, you know, I, I think there's lots to, lots to say about local authorities working with schools closest to them and best place to make decisions. The challenge is. If local authorities don't have insufficient funding they're limited and plus they're trying to deal with complex stuff themselves is that they'll drop one or two balls and what have you and then schools fall under the radar i guess compared to the map model where you've got families of schools operating across a larger region um the the challenges that map might roll out the same policies for us all its schools which we can understand to a degree but then those will need to be refined at a local level but at least my 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 thought is are we just read well we are we're redeploying local authority school leadership in a close-knit hub to 10 or 20 40 schools all spread geographically around a wider location which sounds romantic but probably makes the job physically a lot more harder um although there's apparent autonomy but you know who's to say in the next 10 years we just have Local authority leadership redefined as an academy model, but with schools spread all over the place. And then in 10, 20 years, I we'll think, oh, hang on, you're a local you're a multi-academy trust with 30 schools, but they're all over the place. How on earth do you best deploy your resources and your staff when you're so uh, spread out all over the place? You know, if we'll come full circle. I'm, I'm absolutely confident we will, and we'll, we'll shape it back. And I think the the bottom line is it will always cost money. It it goes back to how much are we prepared to invest in our state schools. You know, we haven't talked necessarily about the independent sector here either. Um but it's it's very complicated. We're all different people, we all want different things. Yes, indeed.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um I mean that's a whole other conversation. I don't know if we could we could really <laughs> do justice to that at the moment. Um but it's a fascinating question. Um I think that it would be good to 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 talk about one more thing if if we may before we draw this to a close. So we've talked about the like, challenges that we face at the structural level. We talked about Ofsted and we talked about academization. Um to bring it back to like the level of the teacher or the school, the school the school level. Um there's a couple of things that we spoke about yesterday that, that Possibly sort of interrelate. One of them is about social media and the blurred lines between teachers' sort of personal and professional behaviours um, mm. online, mm. Um, and how and how toxic that can often be. You talked about the positives of of blogging and tweeting earlier, but it can be very, very toxic place. Very tribal. People having pylons. There's people joke about the half termly beef that happens, but it's but it's <laughs> yeah. not fun when you hit the heart of it. And I, I've learned now how to not be, but. Um, I've been in that place in the past and it and it can be very, very unpleasant. Um, and linked to that is that the you know, I know that you've you've talked about the, the, the culture of fear that often happens within schools as well. And this is something that I wrote about recently in my book, Fear is the Mind Killer. The the, the book had that title mainly because it was about fear among pupils, fear of failure. But in the final chapter, mm-hmm. we talk about fear of fear among within the teaching profession. And if you Google the words "teachers" and "fear," you get hundreds of thousands of hits with lots of examples right. of people, you know, writing articles about bullying and fear and you know all kinds of of problems that we see. Um, so let's think about that because again, this is something that is one of the most toxic problems that we face. I think, but it's also something that individual teachers and school leaders have a lot of power to to change the narrative
0: yeah I mean I, I've been through the whole shebang of um, trolling and uh, being victim to that several times uh, we uh, probably start with teacher professionalism um, if I think of where I observe inappropriate behavior from teachers online uh, my first question is um Does the head teacher of that school, are they aware of it and do they advocate it? And if they do, then they obviously do advocate this online um, breach of teacher professionalism and teacher standards. Um, I guess the more complex question is where does the line blur between I'm a teacher to I'm at home on social media when I tweet my own views. Um, So that's a very complicated one. Um, And you'll often see in many people's bios that... um, these views are my own type of thing, not my employer's as a kind of get-out mm. clause. Um, so you got all that. Um, yeah, I'm, if I think of some of the spats, you know, I've tried to respond, block, and do all sorts. But it, it's, a, it's a steep learning curve for us all, you know. We weren't born with social media. Our children are today. Um, so we are all going through these experiences and learning what to do and what not to do. And, you know, as, as we talk now, there'll be a thousand thousand people having a good old pop at each other right now, you can see it all the time in politics. Um, but what impact does it have on the individual, uh, I guess we don't yet know. Um, I'm sure there's lots of stories and evidence of people committing suicide, as we know, certainly for, for children in schools. Yeah. Um, but I'd be curious to learn about more about adults uh, of each other. I mean, um, as Caroline Flack's probably one of the most recent examples, celebrity-wise, um, with all our social media stuff. Um, uh, but going back to the point on professionalism, you know, we all, you know, if we think about different industries, psychologists, doctors, pilots, those types of things, they have a, a code of ethics, and if you breach them, you are round the table in front of a panel, and uh, you're you get your hands knuckled. It, uh, I guess, through teaching, you know, physically in the classroom, if you behave and your kids raise an alarm or your colleague or a head teacher or whatever, then you get that kind of your hands wrapped in skill and you get on with it but i think through social media it's easier as we all know to express an opinion behind a keyboard or on a mobile phone on a walk to work or with the dog um and sometimes through unintended reasons uh, some things can go viral some people can screenshot you and dm it to someone else and before you know it, you've got a fight on your hands Um I I think we're all learning how to use social media. I think we need to be cautious of what impact it has on each other and what our purpose is. But uh, I think we spoke about this the other day, that when um, we take time to talk to one another, there's less opportunity to do harm and you have a better understanding of someone else's perspective, I think, through social media. Often, we don't take, take time to do that. And what I really like about Twitter recently, in particular, is if you see a clickbait title before you quote tweet or retweet it, it now asks you, do you want to read the article Mm. first? And I'll be really curious to learn in the future when I start to unpick some social media uh, uh, analytics for my research is how many teachers, you know, there was a, a tweet last night from Ofsted, which apparently was scheduled about Ofsted returning to inspections in January, just after all the fracas with the Department for Education announcing on the last day of term that teachers are gonna to have to do test and trace and what have you, and remote timetables on the first day back. So a lot of people were up in arms about um this ofsted tweet. Um but it'd be interesting to evaluate how many people actually read the full article before they expressed the opinion. Yeah. Um so do we do we often go beyond the do we go into the full details before we do the knee jerk reaction? And I suspect that's pretty much how the vast majority of us use social media. Um, You know, it's new territory for us all. It's only been around uh, 10, 15 years. um, I love
1: that. I would love to get some stats on that. How many people see that little warning from Twitter? Do you want to read this before you express outrage about it? No, no. We're quite happy to just crack Yeah, it? yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I would be. I, I, I stick my neck out and think it's a very high <laughs> proportion that don't read it and just want to be first to tweet an opinion because we get so frustrated by that clickbait headline. You know, these, these people that code the clickbaits and the SEO. It's a well-oiled uh, machine. They know what gets the clicks. Um, So they'll just keep replicating that model until the the data or the demographic data suggests otherwise. And, you know, with all these clever things that we have now that even predicts text of what words get more clicks than Mm. others. So they know it works. But that Twitter function is a very interesting feature. It would be very curious to uh, learn how many people read the article before they expressed an opinion. Um, So, yeah, social media is a big, deep fascination of mine, as you can imagine. I've looked at my own analytics as a blogger and a Twitter for over a decade now to... and this
1: is the focus of your doctorate isn't it
0: well it is so i'm currently trying to refine it from teacher voice to what impact teacher voice through social media particularly twitter has on policy so i want to look at ofsted grading schools and i'm just currently learning or self-teaching myself how to code um social media network analysis so if you think of a spider web diagram you can have a static map which is just static and you can see the picture or a dynamic map so i can see that ross tweeted this and james replied or retweeted but i can click and drag and move to um, understand the web of influence and uh, i used the expression with you yesterday who is the mayor so who is that influencer within sub networks of the larger network so you often get a celebrity or a traditional form of media journalist who expresses a, a view in the news and then the, the web that emerges around it is the general public who are expressing an opinion whether it's retweet or reply but if I retweet it to my network and I am a, I guess a, a sub-influencer of my own field I can then influence another conversation. So you know we talk about misinformation which is spreading news without knowledge or disinformation which is deliberate sharing of fake news uh, we can think about it in that respect you know it's a won't be long before it's a you know a degree topic uh a part of the curriculum and it's part of way how we educate our children to navigate this interesting world
1: absolutely it sounds like a valuable piece of research um so so Thank you that's really useful now let's just come back to that final question about about toxicity within actual you know physical school buildings the culture of fear that often we we find unfortunately uh, all too often um what, what what are your thoughts on this and and in particular on ways that we can that we can mitigate and minimize the extent to which this sort of um just just bad feeling um sort of multiplies and, and spreads like just yeah, well, in, in some sense spreads like memes that, that goes throughout schools and school systems
0: but i i think of fear in my own career often comes through what other people perceive of your teaching quality or ability so whether it's through observations or your appraisal um your a threat to your livelihood or a potential new job opportunity or you know that work that implication that someone's observing you tomorrow so you better mark all your 30 books and what have you so I, I guess that fear in that respect manifests itself through different types of teaching um processes um that you know teacher fear other 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 ways aspect or other aspects come you know manifests itself through relationships and bullying um, and we can't all get on with everyone. If you work in a large school with 100 plus staff, then sometimes you'll barely know somebody's name. And you know, my leadership of a large school, every day you would have a new new body, a new member of staff in, whether it was a supply teacher or a visitor. So if it's your job as a school leader to know everybody's name, and that's a full-time job in itself, you, your teachers and general body have got no chance trying to understand who people are walking around the school if. If they're tied to the classroom 90% of the time, and then trying to do all their admin and behavior and whatever else uh, in the limited free time that they've got. So, I think uh, I'll go back to uh, I, was, I did a podcast with um, a Harvard professor, Dr. Tina Owen Moore, and she wrote a fabulous book called The Bully, uh, The Milwaukee, uh, The Alliance Way. And it's the first bully-free school in America. And if you just type uh, the Alliance way on Google, you can search it. And she said something that I've never forgotten. And she said, when people take time to understand one another, there is less opportunity to do harm. So thinking about bullying or relationships or conversations. You know, this is the longest podcast I've ever been on. But, you know, what I liked about what you said was that you like to go slow. and You like to get deep into the conversation. Well, you and I really get... well. at least this conversation you really understand my perspective of my role and my life as a blogger a lot more by having this deep conversation and for people listening you know particularly one or two critics who might be listening you might have a better understand of my perspective or why I have viewed the world a certain way in teaching because of my own experiences my experiences are valid they might not be valid to you because they're not your experiences but at least having the conversation about it you've got a better chance of understanding, uh, my recent research with the brain, uh, empathy and sympathy are dedicated parts of the, the cortex. The interesting thing is, is when people express, you know, the likes of Toby Young's of the world or special needs kids or whatever else, when people express quite a, a strange opinion and demonstrate lack of empathy or sympathy or understanding of others, it's clearly that that aspect of their brain Dare I say, has is is underdeveloped, which is a really interesting point. So, the great thing about our teachers is they've got this fabulous part that's obviously evolved in the brain, where they've got a, a heightened sensitivity of empathy and sympathy of others, particularly children. the 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 danger where it's lost in terms of fear and skills is when we impose metrics, observation forms, which in which then turn into exhaustion, lack of sleep, insomnia, depression, or a huge you know, increase in workload beyond the normal workload that I'm expecting. So that manifests itself in fear, um, lack of understanding, misconception about Ross's ability to be a great teacher because he's just lost his mojo, or no one's really taken a chance to understand that he's just gone through a premature birth and he's not sleeping at night because he's up every hour of the night trying to feed his child. Um, So we, we need to create conditions better to eliminate the fear. And I guess thinking about some of the work that I've done recently or the happier schools that I've worked in, the leaders that create the conditions for teachers to thrive are simply bringing their teachers together on a regular basis to talk about teaching and learning, to help solve complex problems, to share ideas, to share best practice and worst practice, to make the classroom an easier place for everyone. You know, I want to work in a school when I do return to a classroom, I want to work in a school where I can bring my worst books that aren't marked and whether I'm using verbal techniques or I just haven't marked them, but I can talk about it, the issue, and people can give me some suggestions rather than I'm made to feel inadequate that I can't do it or do it the way that the school imposes. And I also want to work in a school where we don't always watch James teach this superhero lesson, go and teach like James, everybody. No, let's watch James, a really good teacher that we all respect, teach this car crash lesson with our children and let's analyze what went wrong and let's hear James's opinion and let, let's all br- burst this bubble that actually James has some difficult moments in the classroom too. That's the school I want to work Absolutely. in. Absolutely, uh, And there are there are schools that are doing that. It's, it's few and far between, uh, but that's the kind of work that I'm trying to instill in my travels. It's hard to do that in a day, so that's why I've got my blog and books to kind of support that kind of longer term impact. So all the schools that I visit, every teacher gets a copy of my book, so they've got that longer term, at least they've got my 25 years, there it is. There they're a book, you take it or leave it, translate it for your own school setting, and I'll do what I can physically or digitally to support that lo- that kind of long-term change. Um, and it's great to see lots of people doing that now. So, um, you know, what works, uh, there's, a gr- um, there's a great expression, there are many roads to Mecca, not necessarily the M1. So. Um, there's lots of ways to success.
1: I love it, and it's so simple, isn't it? When you when you put it like that, and the people who really understand this—if you listen to people like Brené Brown, who's got a wonderful podcast—it's just a conne- it's connection, isn't it? And like you say, the answer to this this fear, this fear culture, and the toxicity and the bullying, is understanding, and you develop understanding. By just bring, like you say, bringing people together and ask, getting them to talk about stuff, and doing so in a free way, you know, so that there's not always mm-hmm. an agenda with every minute of a of a teacher teacher, you know, meeting or gathering, agendaed, and then the, you know at the end there's yeah. any other business, and everyone That's... just keeps their head down because they all just want it to end.
0: Well, I, I think you know, uh, I think the, the research on you know teaching is one of the most stressful occupations. So I think half half of it is through stress and lack of time, and That then translates into, I don't really understand your priorities, these are my priorities, I've got to impose them, these are my challenges, I'm the leader, you need to do X, Y, Z, Uh, and then we just then manifests itself into bullying or accountability or workload or insomnia or whatever it would be. so it's a challenge but that's the pressure our school leaders are under and our teachers Uh, but there are schools that can on difficult circumstances create those cultures Uh, and it, it boils down to good leadership experience you know trusting you to do the right thing balancing those external pressures balancing the resources that you have supporting your teachers it's not an easy job
1: it certainly isn't. Uh, there's a, One of the next um, podcasts I'm going to publish was an amazing conversation that I had with a guy called Colvan Atwal. I don't know if you've come across him. I know...
0: Yeah, I've got Colvin. Yeah, yeah, he's
1: brilliant. Um, and he had a really similar experience to all the things we were talking about earlier when he became a head and he was told he just needs to observe, 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 judge, 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 grade, grade, grade. Okay. And he was like, I'm not going to do that. i would be doing a doctorate about workplace learning and I'm going to invest in my staff and we're going to go really deep on assessment for learning. They're all going to do action research and we're going to use it to create a policy. And the school improvement partners were like, you're crazy. This is not going to work. You're going to, you're going to lose your job. But he was like, I'm just Mm -hmm. going to do it. And, you know, eight years later, the school is recognized as outstanding across the board. He's now the head of two schools. And, you know, when you take that bold move and it's essentially about connection and also about reprofessionalizing teachers, Uh, lots of the teachers in his schools are doing master's qualifications. And that was certainly the best quality, the best professional development that I ever did by miles was doing a master's. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so um there's men- there's a lot of hope out there i think and and the simple the simple message that i'm getting from the end of that conversation is that you know we're better together like you say when we take the time to have conversations like this maybe not all quite this long because i realize that people's people's <laughs> time is precious um but it doesn't take much to just have those little moments of human connection and you realize that this person who you've been banging heads with on so- social media for the last three years it's actually really yeah. nice
0: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah we we're all, we're all trying to do the best with our lives and make a difference. We've all got families. We've all got to go to sleep. We all got to the toilet, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're all pretty much doing the same thing. We've just got different pressures, different, uh, I, I guess, a different set of cards. Um, but ultimately you strip it all back. We all want the best for kids. Um, and that's what it's all about. So, um, yeah teachers are amazing individuals,
1: of course, there are no bad actors um, that 's just an important thing to realize uh, Guy Claxton used that line recently because he 's got a book coming out that 's talking about this whole prog trad thing, but he 's like everybody wants what 's right here it 's just that you know we 've got different different ways of looking at it yeah
0: i bet I bet that title will go down well on twitter so <laughs> it's a
1: sensational read honestly like wait it, it will it will ruffle a few feathers when it comes out but um but all to the good, I believe. So my last question is, uh, what's what's the future hold for you? What's what's on your horizon?
0: Well, getting through the pandemic, so I've been at home since March, um, you know, prior to that, the challenge was for me trying to balance being on the road to schools all around the world um, and trying to manage the website. Now it's gone to the other extreme, I'm balancing the website full time. And fair enough, I'm doing lots of virtual webinars Um, I think my most immediate pressing milestone is to get through my doctoral upgrade and then try and get something published in the next three or four years Uh, would be great. I look forward to going back to Cambridge because all that's kind of come to a halt at the moment. Mm. Um, And using what I learned from that back in my school life has been a fascinating journey already. Um, Probably there'll be another couple of books. There's a couple of book contracts underway, so there'll be a couple of other books. Um, I'd like to see the website maybe go to... uh, Another realm, I suppose. I, I launched the membership uh, platform uh, in June, something again I would have be been plotting before the pandemic. It just, I just guess the pandemic gave me a bit of time, an opportunity to get it stru- uh, constructed behind the scenes from a technical point. So that's going really well, um, and that's given me. Um, Sufficient income to cover the cost of the website and hopefully in a place where it can start to pay my salary in the future. So then it will allow me to start reaching more disadvantaged schools in parts of the UK that I haven't necessarily reached because I I, I guess people's perceptions are that I I must be incredibly expensive to work with, with all my kind of digital identity. So I want to start doing a bit more charitable type work. I'm in a place now where I can kind of make donations to schools and help free school meals, and I'm a parent governor and those types of things. So I'm enjoying those contributions. Um, So, yes, it's getting through my doctorate, managing the website, and I just look forward to getting out to schools. You know, I have Saudi Arabia and Cyprus and... Czech Republic all, all on the list, and I've got had Brazil in March, all those things have disappeared. So it's just been great getting around the world, seeing schools in different countries and learning from that. So I suspect in the future, I'll have a, a Mark Plan teacher, a Just Great Teaching book written in the grand scheme of how schools approach teaching and learning in other aspects of the world through different influences, not academisation, but different government systems. Um, and different models from you know schools in Africa to uh, grammar schools or private schools through a British system independently overseas uh, it'd be quite interesting um, so that's kind of future um, I love the teacher training love my writing love the blog uh, I'm not really going out ever you know going back to the classroom in the future but like I said I'm having lots of fun uh, I'm approaching the big 5-0 he says that aloud thinking that's uh, not too far off so um, yeah thinking about you know, slowing down a little and just contributing and sharing and helping teachers as best I can um, is the is the kind of short term priority. So the next three five years, I suppose, is just getting through all those bits uh, and then reevaluating. evaluating But uh, I'll probably be wrong <laughs> in all of those. Uh, predictions uh, such as life
1: well if that's slowing down ross i would i would like to see what speeding up sounds like i've to got to come to you for some productivity <laughs> tips um but it's it's great to hear that and i can see that that salvation you said yesterday the salvation army was the foundation of your spirit and i can see that that's still manifesting through the work that you're doing you're very outward looking and wanting to give back in a big way and all power to your elbow so yeah, thank you very thank much you. for spending your time with me. Really appreciate it. It's been lovely to get to know you a bit better.
0: Yeah. And thanks for having me. And if anyone's listened to this and you're the first person, uh, I'll donate a couple of copies of my new book to people that have listened this far and James can probably put in a little competition on the podcast and I'll post a couple of books to, to listeners who listen to this first. And maybe we can come up with a little question. I don't know. Should we do it now, or should we wait something later? <laughs> Let's do it now. So, so, um, I found, uh, 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 who founded the Salvation Army? There you go. There's the question. Who was the founder of the Salvation Army?
1: <laughs> there you go. So, if you tweet that to rethinking underscore ed on twitter then um tweet the answer yeah, and
0: fancy. 2.0 comes with a nice visual guide so some great dual code in here you'll like this there you go you can see
1: beautiful <laughs> look at that that looks yeah, like ollie are. cav's work
0: it is ollie cav's yeah we we did this three years ago it's just i've never shared it publicly um so i've just had it printed in an updated revised copy um and that publishes in january next year um so i've just packed 70 books and signed them all and posted and i've got to walk up the hill with 70 books now to the <laughs> post office and i've got people in saudi arabia france australia all over the uk who have bought one off my website so it's all very flattering to give back and people parting with their hard cash with some ideas it's it's all very flattering i'm picturing
1: you pushing a bike up a hill now like that kid in on the hovis <laughs> advert
0: in fact, the hill's that steep. It is that steep. So it's a good bit of exercise living in West Yorkshire now compared to London. Uh, it's difficult to find any hills in London. So it's uh, it's good for the calves.
1: I love running up hills. I've gotten into hill running recently. It's brilliant. It knackers you out faster than anything.
0: <laughs> well, I haven't got to that stage yet. So. <laughs> Stick that on you to-do this. All
1: right. Cheers, Ross.
0: Cheers, James. Thank you, everyone. Time is a measure of change
1: We don't have much time Time is a measure of change